still remembers Pampiro Furpo, who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Who took a shoot, fought off of the scaffolding? Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through. He'll answer questions from you. And he won the pony too. Thank you, fuck you, bye. 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 Hello again, friends. And you are our friends. And welcome back to another edition of Jim Cornette's Drive Through, the first spring edition of the Drive Through right here in 2023. <laughs> I'm your host, the great Brian Lamb. There's nothing funny yet, but there'll be lots of laughs later on here on this show with this man. I'm your host, the great Brian Lass, but this man. The star of the drive-thru, Mr. Jim Cornette. Lots of laughs later on. That's what you're promising them. Not now, so but later. Al- yeah. Already we're ahead of our skis here. But no, I, I laughed and suppressed the urge to blow snot in your general direction. When you said the first day of spring, I'm not going to make a bit out of it, but the weather again in Louisville, Kentucky, Monday morning, it was 16 degrees in Castle Cornet. It was really cold outside. No, it was 16 degrees at the castle here on Monday morning. That's the coldest day that we've had since before January 1st, coldest day of the year, and it's almost April. And now they're predicting by uh, four days later, Thursday, it's going to be 75 degrees, and then Friday, we're going to get between three and five inches of rain. So. Fuck you, match somebody. We've got the goddamn typhoons from Indonesia and the goddamn snow-packed surfaces of the Himalayas around here in Louisville, Kentucky, home of the wild horses and fast women. I'm kind of, I'm getting pissed here. The plants, the animals, nobody knows what to do. Is that a famous expression? I've never heard it before. Fast horses and what was it? Fast women and wild home of, horses. Home of wild horses and fast women. <laughs> it's like, you know, when the uh, the the Wild West, the days when the men were men and the sheep were scared, but nevertheless. No, but is that an actual expression from down there that you've heard? I've never heard that before. Yes, I, th- okay. I think Dream Machine used to use that. Troy Graham. Not Mama Cornette, but Dream Machine. Not Mama Cornette, no. There, there's nothing to do with chewing gum or the heel of the boot or whatever. What did Mama Cornette think of Dream Machine? Oh, she loved him. He was, he was, and he was so polite, obviously, when he was around normal, legitimate people that he, you know, respected. He was so polite, <laughs> yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and everything. But she loved him and was, she was happy I would ride with him because he lived in Memphis when I still lived in Louisville when I first got into business. And he stayed up all night for whatever reasons. And I would always drive back from Memphis to Louisville on Monday nights after the show, so he would meet me at the Shoney's 
and leave his car in the parking lot. And he, I would bring him to Louisville and drop him off at the Days Inn over in Jeffersonville, where the boys would stay, and then I'd come home. So there was about six six hours. Usually one night we made it a little less than five. That was amazing, Memphis to Louisville, but there was no traffic in those days at three in the morning. And uh, so I got to sit in the car with him and listen to him do his, do him, be him for all that time. It was fucking hilarious. That's like my favorite thing, the polite wrestler who's crazy when they're not in front of civilians. Yeah. <laughs> like Ric Flair, you hear all these stories about Ric Flair, and maybe not now, but like years ago if you met him, I don't yes. care what age you were. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. How are you? Sir? How are you and your family, sir? I hope you're doing. God bless you, sir. But no, but with with Troy, it, it wasn't. It wasn't being. Well, I'm not saying with Rick it was either. But with, he was, you know, more reserved. But with Troy, it was just, oh, hello, Miss Cornette. How are you? You know, with his accent and yes, ma'am. Yeah, the good to see you. You know, like that. Not any. You know, just doing the glad-handing parade fucking route thing. Not just the Eddie Haskell of the Jim Cornette not, story? Not necessarily the Eddie Haskell <laughs> type of thing. He was just a good old Southern boy. Anyway, speaking of good old boys, apparently we've had some shade tree mechanics in some part of, of the line here at the Jim Cornette Experience and Corny's drive through on the distribution end. And and we have heard over the past couple of days that the the... Some of the listeners have had issues with fast-forwarding and rewinding and things, and you have volunteered, Brian, to explain. I'm sure they'd love to hear it. It might make a YouTube clip if I tried to explain this, but you actually can tell people why some folks have had problems and what we're doing about it. Yes, and first of all, we're sorry to anyone who's had problems in the last week or so with the show. Uh, not the content. We don't apologize <laughs> But in terms of actually accessing the show, we are actually changing up some things on the back end of the show. And unfortunately, because of that... Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You didn't tell me anything about changing my back end. I've had enough butt stuff no, done to me <laughs> nothing about lately with that colonoscopy. Nothing about butt stuff. The actual mechanics of the show. We've been changing up some things. So because of that, some things that we were assured were taken care of were not. There are some people who have been hearing a little bit about it from us, and we'll see how that works. But Ladies and gentlemen, all the problems anyone who's streaming the show is currently having should be fixed relatively soon, where everything's being worked on right now. If you're downloading the show, I don't think you're running into any issues, but there have been some streaming issues. So what what you're saying is downloading and streaming are two different things. I'm saying they're two different things, and if you Well, son of a bitch. You didn't realize they're two different things? Well, how are they different things? If you you download... you click on it on a computer. I thought you were downloading it, and I thought the act of it playing when you were downloading was it was streaming. It's streaming right along. Well, no. If I went to jimcornette.com and decided to listen to the podcast, either the drive through or the experience, uh-huh. if I press play, I'm streaming the show. Uh-huh. If I download it so that it's on my computer so I could take it and put it in a device or take it with me or do whatever I want with it, that's downloading it. Or put it in my back end, apparently, is what you're saying. That wasn't what I was saying, no. So, well, see, now, son of a, now you've just, you've just blown my mind. I thought that if you clicked on something, you were downloading it, and when it was playing, that was the, the act of streaming. It sounds so, it sounds so, so progressive. It's streaming along. That is not the act of streaming. I thought streaming was the new playing. Streaming is playing, but not all playing is streaming. 
All right. Well, that this has been the drive-through, ladies and gentlemen. Tune in next week for Paul Heyman's dance party right here hey, on the Arcadian yeah. Vanguard Podcast no, Network. Hold on, Heyman. He he he's he doesn't have a beat. He's not easy to dance to. All right. Any but anyway. So and and download. Don't stream or. That's a good thing. I guess that's <laughs> your parents should have taught you is always dribble before you shoot and and download don't stream as mama Cornette used to say always dribble before you shoot yeah or you'll get a foul yes a foul loader and <laughs> and just go to youtube i guess too and we're there and all that stuff works but you say the people that that uh that are responsible for whatever this is that we're out of our physical reach have been suitably chastened and are working to fix the issue or they might get fixed themselves i'm saying uh, people involved have been suitably chastened if you tell us something will be done and it's not done you will be suitably chastened and everything's being worked on right now and i would not be surprised if everything is fixed relatively soon within the next because you know i'm a, i'm a good chastener and i'm i'm also a, an eager chastener i like to chasten people and I don't wait long to do it sometimes if it's, if it's uh, disturbing our listeners. Well, I figured that may be the case, so I got everyone's address so you could type out a letter and send it over. Oh, there you go. And I got stamps sitting right here to put on the son of a bitch. Um, forever stamps? You got the forever stamps? or? Well, of course. Okay. You know, except, God damn, it seems like I always run out right before they raise the price. And then I, you know... I got to buy some more, but it, it's not a forever. It's worth that forever, but it won't be the same price forever. So it's technically, it's how you take forever. Of course, they don't have a lot of room <laughs> on those stamps to write the, all the details. No, they're too busy putting pictures and artwork and used to be presidents. Now it's anything they can get to sell a stamp. Well, just the flag works because at least you can see that. You can kind of identify it because now it's only as big as your goddamn thumbnail. So it's not really, there's not room for the goddamn depiction of Washington crossing the Delaware anymore like there used to be, where it took up half the fucking envelope. But I digress. Here's something. I got to say. <laughs> All no, right. No, it's no, about time. Well, here's something real quick <laughs> that we have a winner, I think, in the, in the charity sweepstakes, or the contest at least, not the sweepstakes. As uh, I've mentioned... Over the last the last drive through and the last couple of experiences, the big spring spectacular sale at jimcornet.com, where we got brand new merchandise on sale April the 8th, Saturday at noon Eastern. You can go to jimcornet.com right now and see pictures and information of all this stuff I'm about to tell you about on the on our home page there where my countenance will greet you. But then there was controversy because one of the things, well, I'll tell you real quick, we've got the uh, December 2022 uh, edition of Inside the Ropes magazine from the United Kingdom, their best-selling issue ever, and now they'll be available here in the jolly old USA, an autograph by me to your specifications. That's one thing we've got going on sale on April the 8th, and exclusive arrangement with Inside the Ropes also, the DVD of myself and Jim Ross, our show from October 2016 in London with young Kenny McIntosh interviewing us about the rise of the Attitude Era, and Brett Hitman Hart jumps in on the last 20 or 30 minutes of that. That is a DVD that'll be on sale, but the big news, 
the brand new official Jim Cornette action figure. And I mentioned, obviously, the genesis of this was the, you know, the breast cancer license plate that Stace had, et cetera, et cetera. And we've finally got it ready to go. Breast cancer, pink and black. And I said originally what we wanted to do was donate, and we are going to do this, $10 per figure to breast cancer or treating breast cancer or fighting breast cancer, the, the battle. And since there's going to be a thousand figures autographed, a thousand of these are not going to be remade. It's a special deal. That would be $10,000 to a cancer charity. And when I Google-fied cancer charity, up came Susan G. Komen. Not the actual, I don't know if there's a person that, but her foundation. Well, it was a person originally. Originally, but now there's a whole bunch of them. And they may be fine people and use their left and right turn indicators, but when we announced this, we got feedback from some of the listeners, both in the medical profession and then people who'd had dealings with cancer in their family or themselves. No, they spent a lot of money on their marketing and merchandising. If you really want to get to the root of the matter, then, then we got several different options. And you mentioned City of Hope, and we got some support for that. A number of people mentioned American Cancer Society. And I've opened it up to emails from the listeners, because you guys are raising this money too, because it's going to be your purchases that provide this. So where do you want it to go? And I've gotten a, 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 I asked if you only, if you had a learned opinion and there's still a lot of, a lot of people that have one. And so we've gotten a lot of emails and I will, some people mentioned, well, more local or regional operations. And one person even said, well, Jim, you ought to be right there in Louisville. Well, no, that people from all over the place are going to be buying these things so i don't i don't want to do a hometown decision and have it all go to cleveland or whatever and so taking out the regional and or local operations and then some were i'm sure all were fine charities but they may not be have the name recognition or cover you know everybody's viewpoint so i think Drum roll. Now, we're going to go with the American Cancer Society because that was the majority of... We've, we've done stuff for them before. Uh, Bagley has on behalf of Dennis Condry. And that was the majority of people that said, ah, they probably spend more of their money to actively treating or fighting rather than marketing and merchandising and, and whatever. So, But it's going to take Hotchkiss a few days to change the banner on the website. But the, the stuff doesn't go on sale till April 8th anyway. So that's what we're doing there. And we are going to raise $10,000. by Cracky. Cut a promo on Susan G. Komen. Well, no, come on now. Let them know what you think of this crap. I'm not trying to. I don't want to get into some kind of goddamn hoo-ha, some kind of hey rube over here with poor old Susan. But apparently a lot of the listeners would rather, especially if they're purchasing one of these figures, their donation go to somewhere else, and more specifically, the majority are saying American Cancer Society. So that's what, but see, I was trying, I just, got Googled the thing. You know, Google may be on the take. Anyway, that's Saturday, April 8th at noon Eastern time at jimcornette.com. You can see the pictures of the stuff now. 
And uh, by the way, and as I mentioned on the show last week or whenever it was, when we do make this donation after the sales are complete, etc., uh, we're going to have Hotchkiss tweet out or send out or out of the smoke signals, whatever, the uh, the confirmation so everybody knows where it went and what's going on. Since a lot of the, some people like to just bring up charities at the drop of a hat these days. Anyway, are you ready to drop your hat? I don't even have it on my head, so I can How throw it across the room. How about your trousers? Just drop something and let's get this over with. Well, let's talk about the back end of pro wrestling here while we drop our trousers. There's a lot of things we have to talk about. We have questions, of course, but why don't we get one of the reviews out of the way, the one that took place furthest to go. The came- Fur- uh, Furthest to go? Again, I'm still coming off all this medication, ah. but the A&E channel, the latest WWE, or not the latest anymore, but... WWE biography series with someone you know quite well, Kane. Oh, Christ. Okay, we were we were going to do this last week because it did air f- further ago than the other programs we're talking about, but that's when you had your experimental fucking baboon heart transplanted into your eardrum, and uh, and we we skipped over it. Uh, but uh, again, now that we've, you're apparently normal now, you're completely off the drugs and you just babble that way on <laughs> absolutely no reason whatsoever. We'll, we'll start in on the program. And I, I talked about this, whatever it was out of when they were preparing it, was it six months ago or a year ago or whatever? Cause people had tweeted me say, well, Jim, you should have been on this. Cause they, everybody was talking about you. Well, they asked me to be on it, and I didn't want to be on it. And I I explained at the time, and obviously, I've said before, just in general, I don't want to do projects anymore that a specific wrestling promotion endorses, because then, with all the wise asses out there, if I take somebody's money, and if I ever say anything good about them, then I'm, I'm on the payroll, uh, but if I knock anything that said, well, you're not too good to take their money, you know, but, so you can't win with that. But again, for the former Glenn Jacobs, for Kane, the gimmick, the performer, the person, I would have done it before he became a politician. And I'm just, it, everything that they said about him in the show that everybody said about him, I've, felt same way and didn't disagree with. Uh, and he's always, you know, not only dependable professional and a uh, employee, never get anybody in trouble or get himself in trouble, but a, a great guy and smart and intelligent and et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, <laughs> A lot of people jumped in at that point in time and said, oh, it's horrible. How dare somebody throw away a friendship over political differences? It's not about political differences. It's not about political differences or should you raise taxes or lower taxes or should this be legal or that be illegal or what should we do about crime or the immigration? But... To me, and I'm sorry if I offend anybody, every single Republican elected official that gave a shit or continues to give a shit 
about being a leader of people or doing good, a public servant, doing good for anybody, should be out there while he was in office, yes, definitely, but now it, it, you can't not just... You, they're, they're either still supporting fucking Donald Trump or ignoring it. And to get votes, instead of trying to educate the suckers that put the Republican Party in this position and blow holes in his lies and his bullshit that has caused this goddamn chaos in the United States still to this day, lying about the election, lying about everything that he fucking was involved in. And they backed him up and they covered for him. And Glenn Jacobs is not a stupid person. I don't know any of these other people that got elected to office, but I know Glenn. He's not stupid, which means he did it for the votes. He figured these people will vote for me if I and this Republican Party will support me as long as I lie for them or just don't fucking acknowledge what the fuck has gone on and was going on. And so that's five Republican voters, big shit. They don't have a goddamn social responsibility to smarten up and go out and smarten other people up. They, can, they, they have the right to be stupid. But elected government officials and leaders, Glenn Jacob knows what Donald Trump is. He, know, he knew what he was when he first started running. And he knows what he's done. And he knows how many of these people he's gotten killed or fucking injured or goddamn just chaos happened with lying about the election and never fucking admitting it. And they wouldn't fucking, most of them, 90% wouldn't call him on it. So that's, it's right from wrong. And if 40% of the country decides they're okay with a lying criminal con man in charge, as long as he does the political shit they want, at some point, the other elected Republicans have to go, no, even if we're winning, we don't want to win this way. This is bullshit. This guy's a fucking criminal. He's an idiot. He's, he's a clear and present danger to the United States of America. He's not equipped for this job. He's in it for himself. Anything that they could have said or still said, why isn't Glenn out there saying now people of Knox County, regardless of who you voted for, we've got to get over this. This guy lied and got people killed and has created chaos. And we must recognize that. But no, he's out there still. He's got a picture out there on Twitter with his arm around Marjorie Treason Green who still continues to support dumb fuck and thinks that the United States should be split in half, which, well, who gets the good parts, bitch? Why should we, why should I move just because you stupid people surround me? And he, or he's out there with the gun ghoul, Dana Loesch, and tweeting about, well, we're going to keep the President Trump policies, blah, blah, blah. So it tells me that Glenn is not stupid. He's doing this for votes. He won't tell the truth. He won't be honest because the stupid people that voted for him won't vote for him again because they still like Trump. 
but that's if if you want to help people, lead people, serve people. Instead of being afraid you won't get reelected when you got two years or four years, why don't you go, okay, we need to have a talk, people. All of the folks that voted for me, most of you like Trump. Guess what? He lied to all of you. Here's what he really is. Somebody needs to say it. That's the way to be a public servant is not to cover for criminals. And maybe if a bunch of them had done this from the start, would they, they were going to at January 6th until they saw that the fucking suckers didn't really turn against him for that. And then instead of telling the truth, they backed up on it. But it's that's if maybe he wouldn't have been able to do this damage if half of the elected leaders in Washington weren't telling people that he was right just to get their fucking votes. So don't, Glenn, don't hug and pose with people who help crooks get away with shit. Whether it's the gun ghoul that fights the laws that prevent children from getting murdered or the rest of the batshit lunatics that you've associated yourself with who were in favor of a guy who tried to start a civil war to stay in the White House instead of going to prison and got people killed in the process and all the other shit he's done. And for anybody out there that still thinks when you're, because we've gotten a bunch of emails. I can't talk to my so-and-so member of my family anymore. They're on the Trump train. And everybody that's on that Trump train, they've chalked it up to political differences. It's not. They might not want to tell you, but I will, because I've been getting these emails. Normal, level, headed, sane people in your life who always liked you and half-ass enjoyed being around you found out that you thought that anything about Donald Trump was acceptable as president of the United States. And you, we didn't consider that political differences. It was invasion of the body snatchers. We looked at you like we'd suddenly found out you'd joined a Colombian drug cartel or got arrested for a fucking series of bank robberies or started standing outside the fucking grade school sniffing jock fucking bicycle seats. It, 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 and it's like, what happened? Brian, how many times have you heard, what happened to my friend Farquhar or cousin Drooplip? They buy this shit. Because some people were appalled that this person would be considered for this office and that people couldn't see through it and know what was going to happen ahead of time, which is exactly all what happened. Al Capone had the same M.O. in Chicago. The criminal asshole that's running shit, as long as he keeps the people happy, they're like, okay. But he went to prison. So I, I don't blame your friend or your relative that doesn't speak to you anymore if you are a Trump sucker out there for political differences. Because they think you've lost your fucking mind and there's reason for that. So that's my commentary on Glenn Jacobs, the politician. But you want to talk about the biography? Let's talk about the biography, of course, Glenn Jacobs. And you ended up being a big part of this story. You were mentioned. You were shown. There was lots of Smoky Mountain wrestling footage. Let's talk about the career of the man who would become Kane. 
You know, but I wonder if I'd have gone to A&E in 1993 and said, air my wrestling program. What do you think they would have said? It looked good. <laughs> on the air, well, didn't yes, it? Yes, it did. But eight, was there an A&E in 1993? Yes, but it was more opera and uh, legitimate biographies, I believe, still. Well. Not produced by the source that's looking for the positive PR in the biography. Anyway. Um, no, it, it covered his, you know, his early life and, you know, he's a big kid, obviously, in Missouri. And when it got to, I'm glad that that Christmas creature feature video was shown because now maybe it'll get the heat off of me because for whatever reason, he got, he got into the business with some indie out there. And I, you know, they didn't even go into a lot of detail about his early training, but since he was from Missouri, that's right close to the Memphis territory, they were still operating. And, you know, they saw a guy that big and the reason why I don't have any reason to dispute the, you know, the story that they gave on, well, we had the sketch for the Christmas creature, but the reason why they wanted to cover him up was because they wanted people to think it was Sid Vicious, who had just, I think at that point, I think Sid was out of one of the big promote, one of his periods of time where he was not actively on television because he was home playing softball or hurt or whatever. But or either that or maybe he was on TV, but they thought he'd come home because Sid every once in a while would show up in Memphis again just because he's home. So they dressed Glenn up in that outfit. But did you hear the brief clip? They said, I think it was, was it Kevin Lawler saying, look how vicious he is. So they want people to think it was Sid Vicious. But I get blamed for that. Have you seen that on Twitter? No. Well, Corn. Oh yes, on Twitter or some wise asses on the internet. That well, you know, Cornette dressed him up as that Christmas creature. No, I didn't. I wasn't even there, and it wasn't even Owen. Um, where I came in the picture was they skipped Puerto Rico entirely for his bio, which. And I thought they have the Puerto Rico library, don't they? Well, that was that wasn't Carlos, that was Victor, wasn't it? But here's what happened was after that point, he went to Puerto Rico somehow because Dutch was booking. And Dutch had heard about him, maybe from somebody in Memphis, Lawler or whatever. But see, Dutch had been working for me in Smoky Mountain doing the TV commentary and wrestling sometimes, but then uh, he got to job to book in Puerto Rico again, so he left and went down there, but we stayed in touch. And then he calls me one day and he says, well, I got a kid down here with island fever, which is basically, he, you know, he wants to be in the wrestling business, but he's had all he can stand in Puerto Rico. He's got to get the fuck out of here. He's going to go out of his mind. I said, well, what's he look like? He said he's seven feet tall. I said, okay, because... The last time that Dutch had, I'd had, I had talked to him about a seven-footer was Mark Calloway from 1990 or whatever. And he told me, he said, he's, he's green, but he looks great. He's down, he was doomsday down there, which the, the red and streaming outfit and the black and the, the hockey mask the deal that they showed and everything, that was the outfit that he already had. I just changed his name. 
because I changed it to Unibomb because of the Unabomber. So point is, he was doomsday in Puerto Rico with that outfit. But Dutch said he, you know, he's green. He's, you know, he's a good kid. He wants to learn. Uh, he's very coachable, but he just needs to get out of Puerto Rico. Have you got anything for him? And that's where, uh, you know, I say yes, because I'd been talking to Eddie Gilbert. And I thought, what if we brought this guy in to be his tag team partner slash bodyguard backup, Eddie, the smaller guy with the big mouth that could cut a hell of a promo. And plus then this kid could get on a job training if he's partners with Eddie Gilbert. Cause Eddie, well, you know what a worker he was. He had a mind for the business. So that was how we brought him to Knoxville. And as I said, just changed the name to Unibomb because that was in the news. And of course his finish is going to be the power bomb, right? But it's Unibomb because it's the only one and blah, blah, blah. But then Eddie does the first TV and four weeks of TV, actually the first TV taping. So he's on talking Unibomb up for a month and the big tag team match they're going to have with the Rock and Roll Express, I think. And by the time that, uh, you know, the thing comes about, he takes a job in Puerto Rico, which was kind of an interesting, because that's what it was because Dutch was working for the office at Victor had, what was it? The IWA then. And Eddie went to work for Carlos, wasn't it? No, I think Eddie, actually, I'm not sure. Cause Eddie went to book, didn't he? Well, that's what, but Dutch was booking. So whatever, maybe I was just the pipeline to fucking Puerto Rico, but to point it anyway, yes, everybody was either coming or going. So, that's where I had to press Al Snow into service because now I've got a a giant mute, you know, hockey masked goddamn monster that has no small smart ass with a big mouth. And we knew Al was a smaller smart ass and he could work, but then he couldn't really talk for the first few weeks, but then he came out of his shell. So anyway, that's how that happened. And then, you know, basically Glenn got a chance to work because what was that? That was January. So he got a chance to work for the next six months with Riggy Morton and Robert Gibson and uh, Dirty White Boy and Tracy Smothers and guys that could give him on-the-job training. And obviously being partners with Al, who had a ton of experience at that time, and then being in the heel locker room with guys like the bodies or you know whoever that we had at the time the funks coming in so he really got a chance to you know kind of get the the territory experience and learn from a lot of different guys before <clears throat> he finally had the the match with taker which was august at the super bowl of wrestling show that we did and that was that was the whole point of that. I mean, obviously, I'd been working as hard as I could to get The Undertaker, and I'd gotten him earlier in the year for the Johnson City show and the Bluegrass Brawl in Pikeville, but it didn't work out. We didn't have Knoxville going on a date that I could get him, so that was the first time we'd brought him to Knoxville, and it was a natural match because now this giant Unibombs had six months to powerbomb everybody and look impressive and then in comes the biggest star big man in the business and 
you know, not only the people want to see it, but also that was the idea. When we brought Taker to WCW, the veterans worked with him, or at least some of them did. That was the idea. And then we got Undertaker to come to help Kane and see a future pay-per-view opponent, a guy that could, you know, move up to the WWF. And then as we talked about in the Batista program they did, that's when we got Kane to come as he was established and work early on with Batista. Hey, can I ask you a question? Yes. You didn't know in January what the rest of 1995 would be for you and for Smoky Mountain Wrestling. No. Did you think you would only have Unabom for eight months, or did you think you would have him for at least a year? What did you think when you got him? How long did you think you'd actually be able to keep him there? Well, <laughs> just because of what he Which, looked like in WWF looking for well, people that look now, like that. Well, but think about this. Think about this. There were a lot of guys either in the WWF or available to the WWF that just physically looked like that or close to that, maybe within a couple of inches of that. It wasn't, it still wasn't that easy because Glenn was very green and, and very, you know, that's what, what I'm saying is I wasn't looking like I've only got this guy for a limited amount of time. I was like, at that point, it was still, wow, look at the potential this guy has. He may go somewhere someday type of thing. Now, after Three months, four months when he's getting better and you saw the footage where he's doing a lot more shit than he was in the the previous year's independent wrestling footage where he was just lumbering around. He started picking it up and he was smoother and he was learning from all those guys about how to be a bigger guy, even though, as they mentioned later on, he had to slow down more for Kane and start really lurk, working like a big man. At least he was. He wasn't killing people. He wasn't landing on their fucking head. He, he smoothed out. So when he first, to answer your question, when he first got there, it was like we've had a lot of guys that, you know, physically look like that and said, my God, and he can move, but can he put it together? And then after several months, it was like, wow, he's really getting better. You know, now you can see more, more potential. And then, at that point, I knew they would be wanting to look at him, and that's why I was trying to put it in that direction, because he was under no contract at all with me. What I was trying to do is, we couldn't sign guys to contracts, but what I was trying to do was point all the guys to the WWF, because that's who we were working with, and make sure that we didn't lose them to WCW. So, you know, that's when we really wanted to make sure that they were noticing him. And the big part of that was Undertaker had seen him in April. And it's like, yeah, we'll keep an eye on this guy. But, you know, it's nothing like getting in the ring in front of any. You can't do it at a spot show either. It's like having a match in a gym. The best, you know, audition for Glenn at that point was in the biggest show we did where there's. 5,000 people there in a, you know, decent-sized arena with television set up, and then Mark could get the whole fucking idea of what they might could do, which he did. Okay. Were you... Rem 
Did you think you'd have Al Snow for more than eight months? <laughs> yeah, to be quite honest, I thought we'd probably build the empire around Al Snow. No, um, I didn't see them snatching Al up, to be honest, at that point. Because remember, he's, he's in the best shape of his life right now. In 1995, he was about 215 pounds. Looked like a fucking strand of spaghetti. With someone like Kane, because it had already kind of been established with Smoky Mountain and WWS relationship, you know, Chris Candido, Tammy, Brian Lee, I mean, a number of people, it seemed like a logical guy for WWF. But with Al Snow, that was the beginning of, okay, this guy can work, this guy's on TV. If they don't get him, WCW will. That was the beginning of yeah. like, everyone who's going to be available, someone's going to go for him. There, there's some element to that. And, 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 but now, back up one second about Brian Lee. Brian Lee was not a Smoky Mountain project. Brian Lee was chosen as the underfaker because he and Mark were good friends at the time until Brian kind of drove a wedge in that yeah, one. Totally forgot he wasn't the undertaker. <laughs> yeah, and told the police. But, um, but anyway, but no, the, the deal, that's why Mark picked him because he, he was similar and he'd grown the hair out in the whole nine yards and they knew each other. But I, I liked Brian as a, as a heel in my territory. I don't know that I would have ever given him a full throated endorsement as Vince, you need to bring this guy in. He'll draw you nothing but money. And I've, you know, I'll just leave it at that. He, he still never quite got the one thing that would made him take that next step. Possibly a brain transplant. I don't know. I haven't seen Brian in 20 years. Anyway. Uh, but nevertheless, so then in the biography episode that we've been meandering around about, the Isaac Yankum gimmick, and I think I've told you this before, but it's been quite a while. Don't know if the folks have heard it. All the talent that I either funneled to or helped develop for the WWF. I mean, starting again when the Smoky Mountain days with Chris Candido and Tammy and the Heavenly Bodies and et cetera, et cetera, Al Snow we talked about and Glenn. Through OVW, even with Cena and Batista and Orton and whoever the fuck, two people Vince has called me about, excited. One was Isaac Yankum and the other one was Gene Snitsky. <laughs> And the Snitsky, real quick, I'm sitting in whatever year it was, is before I moved back to the castle, two or three, 2003-ish, whatever. I'm sitting in my office at my house, and there, the phone ring or rings, yes, the caller ID, it's Vince's number. What the fuck? I answered, he's from the, the limo. It's the day, morning after Raw, they're going to the goddamn airport, wherever the fuck to fly out. And he said, Pal, I just want to thank you for Snitsky. I said, what? And he said, oh, he had a great debut. And that, I think that was the debut where he punted the the baby in the stands or knocked, caused a fucking miscarriage with Marlena or whatever they had go on. Didn't he punt a baby into the crowd? I think it was Lita's, he, not Marlena. It was Lita. No, not, not Mar I'm sorry. Marlena is the miscarriage that uh, shit stain and... <laughs> Who dat his little buddy wrote of uh, the, the, he killed a baby for Lita or whatever. I don't fucking know, but the point is it was pretty fucking brutal. 
And Snitsky had been down here in OVW for a few months. And, and I'm not saying, I mean, he was a great physical look and a great face. And I'm not knocking him. Whatever angle they had him do was just horrible. And he said, Vince said, well, I know we didn't give him give you much time with him, but uh, he did great. I just wanted to let you know, sometimes we pull people up and they, they've got to sink or swim or what. He's basically acknowledging we just pulled him up out of nowhere and did this, but I loved it, so thank you. I'm Oh, well, thank you. And the previous time had been he called. I was still in Knoxville, obviously. And he called me one day. I'm in my office in my house in Knoxville. You're going to love the vignettes, pal. I'm like, what? <laughs> because I knew they, had, they were bringing Glenn up, and I, but it, it, they didn't share the whole concept. I think as Glenn uh, even said, you know, he, he maybe heard about this the day he showed up there. But, oh, you're going to love the vignettes. He's Dr. Isaac Yankum, DMD. And my heart just sunk. And I'm like, oh, my God. And he thought you would like and, that. Well, he's still telling me. About, I mean, you know, he couldn't see my heart sink on the phone. He may have heard a, a slight air escaping my lungs sound. But he said, oh, it's going to be great, pal. And he's got, and he goes into the detail when he's selling something and he's really excited about it. He's got these teeth. And the teeth, and they're all green, and they're rotten, and they're grottled, and they're Oh my God, it looks terrible. There's fungus growing out of his mouth. And he's he's going to have so-and-so in the chair, and he's talking about the chair with the drill. And he's doing the Vince thing, talking about all the things that they had. <laughs> and he's going to be Lawler's dentist. <laughs> God damn it. If you were Vince's dentist, the next time he came in, would you be like, oh, you know, by the way, before we get going, do we have a problem? I'll tell you what, if in 1995, if... Vince McMahon went to a dentist that was watching wrestling and Vince knew about it. He'd changed Dennis. Um, but uh, that's so anyway, nobody liked the fucking gimmick and everybody was kind of, everybody that knew Glenn was horrified because they were like, Oh, this could be the kiss of death. And everybody that, you know, didn't really know him. They were like, carriage is like, Oh shit. Rolling her eyes. Here's another fucking big guy with a goofy gimmick. And Lawler was able to get this, you know, some steam out of it with the kiss my foots and the whole thing and integrating into the Bret Hart deal. But basically the only thing it did for Glenn was get Brett to be on his side then like this poor fucking guy with his horrible gimmick. But everybody started seeing that. Yes. The guys, there's talent here and they, you know, this guy is just the gimmick. So then what do they do? They give him, Another fucking rotten gimmick. It, it wasn't that the gimmick this time was rotten. It's that it was rotten because somebody else had already done it in the fake diesel. And then, you know, again, the guys were rolling their eyes and I'm like, oh my God, how can this happen again? Because now I'm there for it, right? We've told that story a million times. Vince got to fucking between our writing meeting on breaking up on Thursday afternoon or whatever, and me going into the arena on Saturday in Oklahoma, the boys are asking me, Razor and Diesel are coming back because of the live TV that morning where he got the idea that, fuck it, we're bringing them back. And it was Glenn and Rick Bogner was the guy's name, right? 
Yeah, the Big Titan. Well, and that he used the name Big Titan in Japan for outlaw groups in Japan and shit before he went to work for Titan Sports. I wonder if that's <laughs> I wonder if that's why they didn't like him from the start. He was Mike Awesome's partner over there. Well, good good for him. That's just lovely. But I mean, he did the best he could, but he was, you know, kind of there, right? Average. It wasn't going to work. But again, the guys were pulling for Glenn, but he's got to do what he's got to do. And it did. They're, they're in this biography episode, they're trying to make it sound like, well, that's what he needed to do. Cause Nash said, well, he, he, he learned to slow down and work like a big man, like me that we've heard about the six moves of doom. It did make him slow down somewhat because Nash moved so slow, but he was still uncomfortable because he still wasn't himself or something of his own making. I'm not saying that, Glenn Jacobs was secretly Kane all along. It's like Flair just turned up the volume, but it was something that he got a chance to do himself and make him make his own from the first time people saw it. So, you know, that was, it was good practice, but nobody could have foreseen that because, and I've mentioned this before on one of the programs that at the same time, that uh, Vince had agreed to go for the the Kane deal, which Bruce did get the idea. Bruce has always loved the, you know, the brother against brother thing. And the, I'm not knocking at him, but I'm saying the whole, he'd always loved that whole story of Undertaker and then Kane and the blah, blah, blah. So he's got a lot of that. Does Bruce see himself as the Kane in the relationship with Tom or the Undertaker in the relationship with Tom? I, I, now, come on now. I'm asking a serious hey, question. Neither one of them have ever set the other on fire. That you know of. That I'm aware of. of they Bruce didn't notice of, they were both in this. No one got asked if they were ever lit on fire by the other one. Well, Bruce named one of his kids Kane. Uh, but anyways, it was Bruce's idea. The Undertaker would have a brother. But as they were discussing, you know, then putting it actually to reality, Vince had said, you know, because he, he wanted me to fire Glenn up. He said, tell him he better get the killer instinct on this one. Because that was Vince's thing. He doesn't have the killer instinct. He just, Well, it's good. You put him out there as a fucking evil dentist. He went from Smoky Mountain Wrestling for six months in front of the biggest crowds he'd ever been in front of to fucking the WWF in front of the biggest crowds he'd ever been in front of. He's an evil dentist. And then he's somebody else trying to, you know, imitate somebody. So I, I was thinking when Vince was thinking that you want Frankenstein, but you presented him like young Frankenstein, like he was written by Mel Brooks. Anyway, the gimmick designs the same thing. Glenn said in this program, most people thought of Michael Myers or, you know, Jason Voorhees or whatever. Yes, we all did, except for Vince. <laughs> And I still think that he could have evolved into the superhero outfit because I'm just like, come on. The first time we see him, he had tights and boots made in the asylum to, you know, wait for this day or whatever. But they, you know, obviously creative services sent the sketches over to Vince and he wanted the, the superhero and the, the covered up arm. Um, they had the, the, 
Did you see the clip of me in the studio in the ring with Glenn? And, and it was Tony DeVito is, I think, was the opponent, uh, the workout partner there. But <laughs> every time I see that I, footage, I see more of it, I feel like. Well, that, well, because this I was showing him how to go up for the tombstone and kind of Glenn how to make sure he got him up for the tombstone because he hadn't done that before. But I was fatter than a fucking hog. I weighed 275 pounds there. I'll have you know. That's the biggest I ever was. Anyway, we have covered the Hell in a Cell debut many times and the the Taker Kane rivalry. I mean, we've just they've just done a program, but I actually I really liked some of the updates that they did with Kane. I liked. I loved the electronic voice box deal that they had him doing. I thought that was spooky as shit, and that was it was something new and different. Of course, I don't know if I don't win the title, I'll set myself on fire. You could tell when Shitstain had gotten a firm grip on the chair in that room. Uh, the second fucking match they had, he was set on fire. But um, it, it brought up also the King of Ring, King of the Ring '98, was where Kane beat Austin for the title. But nobody remembers that because it was after the fucking Hell in a Cell match with Cactus and Taker, and it gets overlooked but that was a pretty hot fucking deal at the time no pun intended and um do you think kane is as i'm sitting here thinking about it you know the undertaker is widely considered vince mcmahon's best gimmick do you think kane could be number two very possibly yes now that you put it that way because nobody ever asked that question nobody really did well what's the second best one come up with with another one that lasted as long that was created by him not something he got from the territories or something that was already tried out before yeah maybe even the second best one ever there you go or snitsky i mean one or or know. snitsky yeah, one, one of the, the depend let's get him to, let's get him <laughs> in a punt pass and kick competition to see if which one comes out ahead but they'll use a baby instead of a football <laughs> you remember the old radio blooper which one? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the cunt pass and pick competition. <laughs> I never heard that one, no. Yeah. No. Anyway, um, so then they, they started skipping ahead because I said I liked the one of the the updates of the cane gimmick with the electric, you know, voice deal, but then when they took the mask off, I never liked that. Because he was supposed to be burned. And then he was burned. Then Vince said, "Oh, easily explained. He was burned and disfigured in his mind." Well, goddamn it, that's not the same fucking thing. It was to Vince, but when they first took the mask off, he had half his head shaved. Then he had all his head shaved. Then he had makeup. Then he didn't have makeup. And I, they had old Seamus and Drew comment that they didn't like the unmasking either, but. I think more than that is when you start violating the story that you've already told about somebody that's gotten over, and then you disregard big parts of it. That's when I think that you monkey with gimmicks and hurt gimmicks. But unfortunately, maybe that was kind of like the period where Undertaker just became a biker. Because then by the time they got the mask and the red outfit back, everybody was just happy to see it. They were like, oh, but, um, Bruce was like, 
Will, do you take the next step with this character and make him more human? He does think he's in the movie business. He has listened to Vince and Kevin Dunn for so long with their fucking gaga and hoo-ha. He's so full of shit, it's amazing. But but he doesn't, he believes it because he's listened to it from them and he's bought it. His Glenn's wife, Crystal, didn't like the unmasked haircut either. And then the shaved head and the eyebrows, we had absolutely no hair at all. Uh, but But he overcame that as i said and then you know when the people got him back it was like the undertaker okay and then their you know reunions and major tag team matches and shit over the last several years but then you know the last 10 minutes was his life as a mayor you know appearing at the october fest and the dogwood festival and you know just as i said in my preface i would have been all in favor of Glenn Jacobs leading people and being a public servant until I see who he associates with and makes excuses for or ignores the exploits of. And I never thought, would have never thought, that he would, you know, be a part of supporting people like that. I think that's the thing that I've seen that's bothered people that know him or have known him for years. It's not that he got susceptible or fell into everything it's that he knows better and he's using this for his own personal gain but he knows better i don't see any way in the world he doesn't he's in the same hall of fame as the prick if they if they go to the hall of fame luncheons at the sportsman's lounge out there in fucking Rosita or cucamonga or wherever but it's a whole new version of wrestling history just the last 30 seconds that you've written <laughs> No one ever talks about the Hall of Fame being put in Reseda or Cucamonga. This is a new idea altogether. Where where did they the the old Cauliflower Alley banquets back when Mike Mazurki was Studio around? Studio City was uh, Studio City the, uh, the the Sportsman Sportsman's Lounge is what I believe it was. Sportsman's Lodge maybe, or they maybe they lounged and lodged both. <laughs> Sometimes they lounged so long they got lodged in. Well. Obviously, from the debut of Kane in 1998, I guess it was? No. No, 97? October, October 97. 97. Same day Brian Pillman died. Oh, that's right. We had to bring us down with that. But I was going to say, yeah. from the debut, a scary character. Lots of fans had nightmares. They thought they had nightmares about The Undertaker. Here's his undead, burned brother. But it was all in his mind, as it turns out. You have to wonder if the fans at home... Maybe they need some help. They're a little scared. Or maybe Kane himself, because it was all in his mind. Maybe he could have used some help from the Sunday Scaries. Well, you know, Brian, I'll tell you what. That's a thing that a lot of people have. Sundays, you know what the Sunday Scare? They give us a bunch of examples here with the, uh, the copy for the, uh, the advertising for this fine product. They give us a lot of examples of Sunday Scaries and how life can be scary and put you on edge. Have you shaken like a dog shitting peach seeds? But I think it's simple enough to say that Sunday scaries are when you realize on Sunday that the following week is going to start the next day and your life is going to be the same way it was last week. That's a Sunday scary. That's a, that'll just smack you right in the face. Yep. Whatever you had to put up with last week, folks, you're going to be putting up with more of it this week. But that's why that Sunday scaries were manufactured. That's why they were brought into existence. 
Because folks, again, do you want to get up on Monday morning and do you want to feel despair? Do you want to feel gloom? Gloom, despair, and agony, oh me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. Folks, I say no to you. You don't want to feel that. No, instead, what you want to do is you want to check out the Sunday Scary CBD gummies that, folks, they have been worked at. Now, it's not like that THC stuff that the young folks use to get all loopy. It's the CBD stuff that's scientifically been proven to chill you out, not make you cold, but make you relax, not make you shiver, but make you ah, shut your brain off and let your muscles evaporate into a blissful state. Folks, as a matter of fact, with these Sunday scary CBD gummies, you'll almost evaporate entirely. Many people have just melted into the upholstery. Well, don't say that. They've had to be pried out with a spatula. Metaphorically speaking, yes. Metaphorically speaking, of course. They'd say, well, you know what? I can't feel my legs. So just no, pry it, me it, out of this seat with a spatula. Metaphorically speaking, they may say that, but in actuality on the real world or in the real world, they're not saying these things. They're just enjoying the, the, the Sunday scaries properties as yes experience that's the word i was looking for yes because sunday scaries are deliciously cute vitamin boosted cbd gummies they're cute did you just call them deliciously cute? they're delicious that's what it says right on the package here (laughs) deliciously cute vitamin boosted cbd gummies that are a must-have because they work and chill you out fast while not getting you a sentence in a penitentiary in certain states Let's say you're a horrible sleeper. You stare at the ceiling and you worry because you know the people that live upstairs are a couple that weigh 350 pounds apiece. And every time they start getting amorous, you think you're about to be crushed. It's like a sword of Damocles hanging over your head, folks. No, no, no. Just take a couple of the Sunday scary CBD gummies and when they get to bumping uglies, you won't give a shit. You'll roll over and blissfully fall asleep. Folks, once again, whether it's Sunday or any other day of the week that you are scared or anxious or nervous or saying, oh, shit, well, you don't need to do all that because the Sunday scary CBD gummies were made to defeat the various crapola that life will throw at you, especially other people. If you've got other people throwing stuff at you, well, call the police because that's assault and it's illegal. But if they're only metaphorically pitching it over the fence in your direction, You take two CBD gummies every day to keep the scaries away. And right now, if you go to sundayscaries.com, that's Sunday as in the day of the fucking week. If you can't spell that, I can't fucking help you. You got bigger problems than not being able to sleep. (laughs) Sunday scaries, S-C-A, what's the matter with you? S-C-A-R-I-E-S, sundayscaries.com. Some people may do E-Y-S and that that just won't work sundayscaries.com and use the promo code JCE, you're going to get 25% off, not 25% off the relaxation or 25% off the sleep, but 25% off the cost, which is already negligible to begin with. sundayscaries.com, use the promo code JCE for 25% off the Sunday Scaries CBD gummies, which you'll get 100% of your Sunday Scaries off 
the experience if you take the Sunday Scaries CBD gummies that you get 25% of the price of them off. It'll take care of all of your Sunday Scaries, but you'll get 25% off the actual cost of the purchase. Sundayscaries.com. Sunday Scaries. That's what I said. That's right, Sunday Scaries. But Jim, let's go from Sunday to Monday, a news story that broke on Monday. The WWE Hall of Fame class of 2023 will include Andy Kaufman after all these years. Naturally, a lot of people wanted to hear what you thought about this. Well, I don't know why they haven't done it before. And it, it's uh, kind of shocking when you think about it. We've talked about it before. What, what in the world is holding Andy Kaufman up? So, yes, I think if, if you're going to have a celebrity in the WWE Hall of Fame, he and Cindy Lauper have to be the first, would have to be the first two, and neither, as of yet, has gone in. At least now they got Andy. So, yes, I'm. I'm Andy Kaufman and Jerry Lawler as a match and a feud and a rivalry is hotter now than it was 40 years ago. They, it's been it's been 41 years now. Um, in what two weeks? And they did the Tales from the Territories episode on it. I did the I Was There on Vice's YouTube on it. It's been talked about and rehashed in movies and podcasts and etc. And people are fascinated with it. And it's all because Andy, first and foremost, was he wasn't a fan like you would get today who wanted to jump in and participate and do the cool moves. He was a fan who wanted to, to be involved in the way that he could and did more to put the business over than anybody that's ever come from entertainment. That's what I was going to ask you. Has there ever been a celebrity that got involved with wrestling that understood what to do and what not to do with wrestling the way he did? No. And, and I mean, we're not talking about, I'm sure he didn't know how to, do all the moves and there's, you know, plenty of clips of him and Jimmy Hart, <laughs> you know, fighting that it, no, it wasn't that he understood the business psychologically and what made it work and what made the fans, what made him like things or what made him dislike things. He, he understood the business on that level because he spent his whole life with doing those things, committing to something and not letting people see through it. And then watching their reaction and getting their reaction. There's something also to be said for growing up idolizing Buddy Rogers. Well, yeah. And I mean, he he was kind of with it enough, even as a kid, to know that this guy is the best at what he does. It was like the people, you know, 25 years later wanted to be cool like Ric Flair. Or 20 years later, they wanted to be cool like Steve Austin. But Rogers kind of invented a lot of that you know, the heel stuff for the television era. And that's what, you know, Andy picked up on that made him so good at, at not only being a wrestling heel, but just all the other characters and the things that he did to the point of, he wanted to make you wonder. He wanted to make you believe whether he was really crazy or whether he was really from, you know, Bulgaria or wherever the fuck, you know, Latka or whether he was, really Tony Clifton or whatever he did there, there had to be some kind of doubt, some kind of way that he could work people. And he got all of that from wrestling. What were your first impressions when he showed up on Memphis TV or in the territory? Did you 
Based on what you knew, did you expect it to be? I mean, you didn't expect it to go a year and a half or whatever it ended up going. No, they didn't expect it. <laughs> and people, you know, that's the other thing. It went so long that by the end, not to put it down, it wasn't drawing. It wasn't a big drawing feud. So, that, I mean, people look at it today and it's a legendary feud and it's great stuff. And if you watch it, it's great TV. But it wasn't, was it, it wasn't one of the more successful all-time Memphis wrestling programs, was it? No, no. Well, and see, that's the thing that Lawler, Lawler doesn't take credit for half of the sellouts that he fucking had with people, but he still thinks that, or at least says that he and Kaufman sold out. There was, it wasn't, there was 8,000 people there, but that was, it was, you know, one of 52 Mondays that year. Uh, they didn't know it was going to be the most famous match in the history of wrestling. But when he first showed up to answer your question, you know, they obviously everybody knows the story of how they made the contact through Bill Apter and, and he got Lawler on the phone and they invited him down. And he, you know, initially showed up in Memphis and cut a promo and challenging the women. I will wrestle women from the audience or whatever. And then I went down for the first, actually for the, for the two weeks of his women wrestling because, you know, uh, obviously to get pictures or whatever. And, and Lawler had tipped me off. Okay. He's going to be in Memphis, you know, next Monday or whatever. So I could plan. And it was amazing because everybody, all of the fans, they had, I don't know, at least 20 women volunteer and got up in the ring and did the old deal, you know, holding a hand over, let's get your applause. <laughs> Cause I mean, he couldn't wrestle all 20 of them. It was a shoot. And um, Foxy, right? Well, that she was number four because they picked four women. Was it three or four? I can't remember. I've, I'll go back to my notes. But anyway, the point is, you know, again, Andy's, uh, he knew enough about wrestling and with the situation he was in to not get beat. It was a three minute time limit. He's wrestling average women out of the crowd that are in the, in front of, Thousands of people in the Coliseum, scared to death, probably. They're going to blow up their tents. He can just not be pinned. So, But they were shoots in that respect, in that the girls were trying. And, I, and he beat, eventually, the first three when they'd blow up. And then Foxy was fucking, was a handful. He's tired. And they went the time limit. And the fucking people went crazy over her. So that's when... You know, Lawler and Jared are sitting there at ringside, and they saw something in that. And uh, and so then they brought Foxy back the next week, uh, you know, and, and advertised it on television. And said, you know, and Lawler said he's going to give her a few tips, because, you know, he went over and whispered in her ear a couple of times when he could see the people the first week, the people were getting with her. And then, you know, he uh, Kaufman ends up winning but tries to, you know, abuser and like gives her the little kicks afterwards and Lawler goes and shoves him off. And there you go. Uh, the people were ready to see that. The idea that during the first match, not knowing what the result, well, I shouldn't say it, not knowing what was going to happen. Lawler noticed something and went to the ring to whisper advice to her. That probably wouldn't happen today. The idea of an improvisational moment. Okay. Something's happening here. How do we build into this? Well, this whole thing wouldn't happen today. 
Because and see, here's the thing: a lot of people probably don't know when we say, "Well, they brought Foxy back for the rematch." They never smartened her up, ever. She to this day, from Jerry Jarrett or Jerry Lawler or anybody involved with the wrestling company, has no idea that she was part of a fucking work. Because they just said, "Hey, we think uh, you know, we think." Uh, the people would like to see you come back and try it again. Would you like to come back and try it again? And Kaufman said, if she beats me, I'll give her $1,000 and I'll marry her. They, they probably wouldn't have taken him up on that part. And I'll marry him. I forgot about that part of the stipulation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I th they brought her out, Foxy on TV, to cut to prom. And she was kind of a celebrity around her neighborhood especially. But no, they never said anything on this card is a work or we are arranging this in any way or this is going to be used to further anything. It was it, it was real. You get three more minutes at Andy Kaufman, try to beat him. Because they couldn't smarten her up or people would have seen it a mile away. So that this, <laughs> So yes, none of this would have happened today because they were actually using fans as part of this thing that didn't know that they were involved in a goddamn situation there. And that was and then it, it's uh, again a lot of people don't know this was in November of uh 81 and then it wasn't until April of 82 that they had the match because after they talked some more then Obviously, I guess Andy was still filming the television show. He couldn't just come to Memphis every week. But he started sending in the interviews then, the, and which were really were from the pool in his backyard in Los Angeles sometimes or whatever, or Bob Zamuda's place or whatever, wherever he was, knocking the people in Memphis, saying he was going to sue Lawler, and they built the whole thing up, and it, they set it up for about three months. When did you hear that he was going to be, when that Lawler and Kaufman were going to be on Letterman? How did you get tipped off about that? Well, actually, Lawler told me, because <laughs> Lawler gave me a heads up so I could get to Memphis for the Kaufman match also. He said, yeah, he said, we're fucking, uh, we're having the match in two weeks or whatever it was. But then, uh, yeah, he said, I'm going to be on David Letterman. And the thing is, that night, they ran Rupp Arena in Lexington which was usually that month's biggest house, and they left Lawler off the card so that he could go to New York. And if, if what we did was we did the show real quick, shot over to fucking Jerry's and had uh, uh, something to eat real quick with uh, Christine Jarrett and Donna, and then came straight home and got right home in time for Letterman to come on, and I videotaped the thing. But obviously, I didn't know he was going to slap shit out of him, nor did they until they pretty much got there and did it. So that, that was famous. I've seen Lawler wear street clothes a lot. Is that his New York outfit? What was that outfit he had on? <laughs> Just a jacket that, well, with no shirt? No, it, here's the thing. If Lawler did something on regular television or, you know, something, a, a big deal like that, he had some goddamn wild ass, allegedly fashionable clothes off of Beale Street. <laughs> if if he was just coming to the you know to the back door of the building and gonna you know go to the matches, he was wearing a fucking tracksuit or something, but or shorts and a fucking tank top in the summertime. But he dressed up for that one. What was it? Red leather or pleather pants or whatever? And it was an but interesting yes. outfit. Yeah. And he he at this he went at the same time. That's where he had pictures taken with Rodney Dangerfield over at Dangerfield's club. 
and sold those all over the place on the, I wished I'd have been the one to take that picture. I heard when he did that, Rodney said, Hey, do you know this wrestler here has been stealing my material for years? Who is he? Yeah. I tell you, who is he? He's somebody named the King. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, but, oh, but, but, but let's go back to, cause the thing you said with the, the program went on so long though. So a lot of people don't remember that later on in 83, especially Andy just got the bug. And I mean, he was making, I don't know whether they ever got him in Evansville. I was, you know, on the buttermilk run at that point in time, about to go to Mid-South. But he was making Memphis and Louisville. He'd make Nashville on Saturday nights. He was at it, at the Memphis TV studio on Saturday mornings. And they did a, at one point, they did an angle where he teamed up with Jimmy Hart and then they got mad at each other and split up and did a thing where they had a match around the territory. And then it, 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 they both switched back heel again. But it, it was the law of diminishing returns. The more, I mean, Andy would say, oh, I've got a partner that's going to kill Lawler, and they'd have a handicap match, and it, his partner would be the Colossus of Death, who was Duke Myers in a horror movie outfit. <laughs> and I, like, I like Apocalypse better. Apocalypse was a little more offbeat, but but that's the thing is it would, Andy was more, he became almost one of the boys for a while there in 83, but they've, they had creative angles. There was the night that Lawler had thrown fire in Jimmy Hart's face and burned him. And Hart had come out on TV wrapped up like Claude Rains in the Invisible Man, right? And just sunglasses and all wrapped up in the hat and his outfit on. And he's saying he's going to get even. He's going to be in the corner when Nick Bockwinkle beats Lawler that Monday night. It was an AWA title match. And so, goddamn, when they end up doing the fucking match there's jimmy sitting in the corner all wrapped up all night and lawler they bump the referee and lawler's got bockwinkle pinned and out from the fucking back comes jimmy hart and screws lawler and people are what the fuck and then the fucking mummy unwraps and it's andy kaufman and again you know most people wouldn't imagine that well that fake jimmy hart in the corner is a star of one of the top 10 television programs on network tv who just dropped in to dress up as Jimmy Hart to fuck Jerry Lawler out of the AWA title. But it it didn't, it, after that, that was early on. After that, it was so regular and repetitious, and Andy was around a lot that the novelty was off of it. That's amazing there, that the wrestling fans would say, yeah, Andy Kaufman's wrestled a lot here lately. I don't really need to go see him. But that's kind of what it happened. But how are you gonna how are you gonna say no to him? He wants to wrestle, and he's not cashing the checks. He's not cashing the checks, and he it's not like he wants to wrestle and beat anybody. He wants to wrestle and get heat, and so that Lawler can beat him. So yeah, as deserving as any celebrity of being in a wrestling hall of fame, I think. Yes, most definitely, and should have been the the inaugural member. Jim, another story that a lot of people have been sending to us over the last day they wanted to get your thoughts on. Yesterday, as we are recording, Rhea Ripley tweeted out, People need to respect that no means no. At airports, do not follow me outside. Today has put me off completely. I will not sign anything that's in <laughs> yeah. caps that isn't a personal photo of us anymore. Hate me. I don't care. Disagree with me, try putting yourselves in our shoes for one bloody day. 
this has been a recent thing. Now we're starting to hear a lot more talent talk about it. Rey Mysterio recently had an incident with a fan who just wanted him to sign a bunch of stuff. What are your thoughts about this with Rhea Ripley? What are your thoughts about fans waiting at the airport for autographs and fans who are not getting the autograph from themselves, just getting it for commerce? Well, yes. And I mean, it's not like this is brand new. It's been going on for a while, but apparently now it's it's plaguing especially the WWE guys and and girls and especially when you know these people I guess they communicate with each other and know when people are going to be flying in and arranged to you know be there blah 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 but in the old days again if the fans waited around in the back of the arena where the the stage entrance was where the wrestlers would come in it whatever area of the uh, facility that was in your local town. The baby, back then, nobody sold autographed anything in wrestling. I mean, besides the official merchandise stand, if some guy wanted to sign his pictures and put them out there, they would sell them. But there was not a big market in autographed wrestling stuff in the 70s and maybe even to the early 80s in the territories. The fans would wait out back and they and they would basically want to get the the baby faces autographs. Most people wouldn't go up to the heels and then the heels wouldn't encourage it. But you were kind of looked at like a prick if you were a baby face and didn't sign the autograph book for the kid or the girl. These were not like 45-year-old adult men, you know, working as truck drivers or fucking whatever that were waiting for autographs, right? So that was frowned upon if a babyface didn't sign autographs and and then it would hurt the fans' feelings in that situation. Then, especially in the 80s and, you know, when it got to be such big business in the smaller territories as they were going down, that became a way for a lot of the babyfaces to make extra money and they were out not only signing autographs but hustling their own stuff, right? But now... This isn't six-year-old kids at the back of the Louisville Gardens with an autograph book looking up to their hero, Bill Superstar Dundee or whatever. It's people bringing all this plethora of merchandise. You can see from the videos, all the pop, Funko Pops and the trading cards and the various, as Sputnik Monroe used to say, rags, paper, and pens that they produce these, these days. And they're grown adults, and they're wanting the talent to sign multiple copies of things or multiple figures or multiple whatever. And one, I've, the video I saw, this one guy even had it arranged like on this board where there was like 20 items, but they were all laid out where the talent could supposedly just go and sign it easier. Right? Here, I'll make it easier for you to make me $500 or whatever. And then you think that. Not only is this happening, and they see this money that they're not going to see anything of, that it's not for these people personally. It's not to make their kid happy or their sick mother or their friend that couldn't come because he's in the goddamn army or whatever. And they're getting off a plane at who knows what time of the morning or what time of the night where they've flown however the fuck far after getting beat up for a living. And they got to get off the plane, 
get their bag at baggage claim, find where's the goddamn rental car counter in another airport. Oh, by the way, my ass is still numb because I've been sitting in that fucking seat and I can't feel my feet, but let's hurry so we can might eat and go to the gym before we have to get to the building. Oh, here's some fans that have some stuff they'd like us to sign for free so they can make hundreds of dollars on our name while we go troop off into the parking lot lot looking for our hurts. So, fuck you. Yes. What? <laughs> it's not hard to figure out what's going on there. So, you know, again, it's I'm not saying that they shouldn't ever sign autographs for cute little kids or even dedicated fans, but especially with the multiple items where it's just egregiously and blatantly a money grab, or even if it's only one thing, if you see a guy fucking unfolding himself out of a car or coming off an airplane, dragging 60 pounds of shit with him, and maybe wanting to go eat somewhere or just piss, and you're like, please, 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 don't fucking hang out at the goddamn airport. Go to the building. That's when they're reasonably at work. Get reasonably laid. On... Go do something else. Well, Why no. are you harassing people at the airport? But uh, but no, we we used to get fans that would even come to the airport the next morning, the real dedicated ones. And they're saying be... those are different fans. It's a different okay, class well, of fan. Hold on, that's what I'm saying. They would they would just be, hey, we just wanted to see you guys and say thanks or whatever, or hey, would you sign our program from last night? And there's ten or twelve of them. Okay. I don't mean 10 or 12 programs. I mean 10 or 12 people. And we're sitting there waiting for a flight anyway. But when they're ambushing people, when they first come into town with a binder full of photos, with a binder, um, like I said, go to the building. And I know the security is not like it used to be where you can't get close to people, but you know, at least somewhere, somehow they're halfway at work there. Flying is such a pain in the ass. Commercial flying nowadays is such a pain in the ass. If you're someone who has to do it once to go someplace, by the time you get off that plane, you just want to be left alone. Imagine if you're someone who does it all the time. Leave people alone at the airport. That's my well, attitude. And that's the thing. I started when I would go to the Charlotte Fan Fest every year. I liked everybody that went there. All the fans, I recognized them. I remember them from the Carolinas from years before. But here's the thing. In the middle of summertime, it's probably almost 100 degrees. You've driven eight hours. Your legs are fucking numb. You're hungry and you want air conditioning and you might have to take a shit. And you're going to be there for four days. But you first walk into the fucking lobby and everybody's got to stop you and ask you 18,000 questions while you're trying to fucking schlep your shit to the room. Give me a minute. Well, well let's talk early in the morning. The first of the four days I'm going to be here. Just let me get in the fucking room. So I understand, yes. I remember when I was like 18, me and my little brother hanging out outside the gate at Shea Stadium to meet anyone associated with the baseball team, the Mets. It was them against the Braves that day to get some autographs. You know, we're kids. I, he was a little kid. I was an 18-year-old kid. And Don Sutton, later to be a Hall of Fame member, a pitcher, great pitcher. Well, some would argue that. But a Hall of Fame <laughs> pitcher, he, when he walked out, immediately said, I'll sign what you want. Just walk with me. He didn't want to stop. He wanted to get to his car. So if you, you walk, with, walk him, with me, yeah, he would sign it. Bob Murphy, who was the old crusty announcer for the Mets going back to 1962, who was like five feet tall. He came out and stunk a gin. And I was, I witnessed a sub little kid went up to him. Mr. Murphy, can I have your autograph? And he said, not today, pal. 
<laughs> and he kept walking. And it was a kid. He called the kid pal. It was the funniest thing. But a lot of people want to be left alone uh, when they're and, well, and that's the thing. If you stop moving, <laughs> you're dead. If you stop, they've got you. Then you look like an asshole if you start moving again. You're there for this. So you got to keep moving. It's that walk with me. That's the old fucking deal. Well, Jim, speaking of people that keep moving, a lot of listeners have sent in questions as news broke over the last day that Goldberg is officially a free agent. He is not currently under a WWE contract. He's a WWE Hall of Famer. What are your thoughts on Goldberg being a free agent? Well, now, not that I would have any knowledge. Yeah, what are you of allowed anything? to say? <laughs> Not that any NDA would prevent me from saying that, well, you just know that Tony Khan was a fan of the late 90s WCW television program. So one would be led to believe by that, that if a big star from that period of time would be available contractually, that aforesaid Tony Khan would look into that one would think as, as you know, doing due diligence in the business that he's in one of the many businesses he's in, he's in the, he's in the football business. He's in the wrestling business. He's into a little bit of the monkey business, but that's all I know. I'm just a small town bird lawyer, but here's the thing, you know, that if I'm not saying that Goldberg might not want to take a payoff from new Japan to have a match. Or I'm not saying that he might be, you know, jockeying for some kind of international thing that, you know, promoters that he knows in other fields might put on. But one would think that if he was open to, as he said, a retirement match, big blow-off spectacular, this is it for Goldberg, that... If Tony Khan makes any offer for that, then one would suppose that the WWE and specifically Vince McMahon, if Vince is still around, if they haven't sold the thing yet, is there, is there any way Vince is going to let that happen anywhere else but the WWE? So if Tony makes a bid, does he just start the bidding that he's not going to win? And if so, is he going to even play that game? Because then it'll get, that's what Goldberg's trying to do because he knows it could get stupid if stupid people were involved. But in the end, the WWE will not let Goldberg have a retirement match for any promotion that the United States audience at least would ever see or really hear about besides them. New Japan, maybe, or something he said in. He didn't he actually say maybe we'd get somebody to put something together in Israel? I did not see that. I have no idea. I th I think so. There was something of that on the on the interweb somewhere when I saw this being talked about. But the point is, isn't he starting this because they've let his contract expire, WWE, and he's got to know that the only way that he's going to get you know, a, a big, a big fucking payoff for a last match is if two people are bidding for it. So is he trying to open that up? That's the question. Let me ask you this. Based on the most recent appearances of Goldberg that we watched, based on his name, based on his age, based on the way we've seen AEW use Sting, 
beyond Tony just being goofy with money, is it a worthwhile cause to throw a lot of money at Goldberg with the idea you can use him and build up to an event that would be his last match? Well, yes. Um, I mean, he's he's a big star. And if you did it right with the right opponent and they had the promos, then then it would mean something. And then, and we can't say until, you know, we would have a spe specific opponent, but then you'd have to figure out, can you, he's probably not going to want to lose his retirement match unless it's a lot of money. You don't want to necessarily do it then with somebody that you would harm by beating them and then they're still there while Goldberg's gone. So is it something like um, a, a perennial guy who can afford to lose but who cuts a good promo that you feed to Goldberg but makes story mean something, hopefully, and then Goldberg wins and gets his hand raised with the spear, jackhammer, whatever he can fucking do. I'm not saying this is the way to go, especially with Goldberg having to win for the retirement match. But MJF Goldberg is interesting. <laughs> yeah. When he was on Rosie O'Donnell, that was one of the wrestlers, if you remember, he said was his favorite, was Goldberg. Yeah, and it might even be interesting to MJF in his mind, too. But about 90 seconds into that fucking match, it wouldn't be as interesting to MJF. So with that said, and again, Paul Heyman's been the master of putting together these matches in WWE where you take guys who have, I don't want to say limited ability, but maybe because of age, because of training, because of injuries, can't do physically what they could have years earlier. And putting together a match built around big moves and getting big reactions. Looking at the AEW roster, who would you even book Goldberg with? Ooh, see, that's, that's again, it's another problem. It might be the old deal where if he wanted to if Tony Khan, too many pronouns, pal, because there's nobody on the AEW roster. I mean, there's plenty of people that could take the spear and the jackhammer. I don't that's know. That's not the question, though. Yeah, that's yes. That's not the the question is who would you be able to make people pay to see in 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 the right cir circumstances that take the spear and the jackhammer rather than, you know, just add. Hey, Goldberg's going to have a match and spear and jackhammer somebody. They got to want to see the fucking opponent go down and blah, blah, blah. I don't know who that would be. Could it possibly even be an old deal if there was anybody that fit this category? How much does Brett want? Where? Well, no, come on now. <laughs> I'm, kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, but where I was going was uh, the old deal where a promoter buys a hot match for his big card and both of them come in. They're two nationally known stars and they work together often in big matches. And that, like when... Hogan and Andre the, in 1980 showed up on the Superdome card or, or whatever, maybe, but is there any opponent out there that Goldberg could, I mean, they could be a rematch with Jericho. Jericho is one that would be interesting because of the behind the scenes story, but yeah. more appropriately, there is a history there. They're both WCW guys, same era. So that one is actually a really good pick. Yeah. As long that... as Jericho doesn't get in the way creatively. Well, and also that would, again, you know, Goldberg would have to win that one because then people would just have a bad taste in their mouth if Jericho and, and his appreciators fucked Goldberg in his last match. So, and then Jericho would probably say, sure, Tony, I'll do the job. Pay me the same thing you're paying Goldberg. I don't know. But 
It, it, it could be I, a feud I, that actually lets you bring out the serious Jericho. See, that's the thing. Part of the problem with Jericho is his booking of himself doesn't really capitalize on his best qualities. Something like that, if you built it up the right way for a period of time without all the extra hands, could be interesting. And then, I don't want to say this wrong, even though Jericho, well, how old is Goldberg? Let me look that up. Because however old Goldberg is, Jericho's only probably three, four, five years maybe younger. 56. Okay, so four years or whatever it is. But Jericho's been in the ring regularly, and he's smaller to begin with. And and a guy like that, it, part of Goldberg's package and his appeal was not only his physical presence and dominance and the big body and everything, but the way that he could pick people up, move them around, jackhammer, spear, the explosive movement. That's not, and as we've seen, and this is not even a knock on him, as I'm describing this. Chris has become a master of economy of movement in the ring. And unless you're looking with a trained eye, you can't really tell. It looks like he's doing everything, but he ain't doing it the way he used to, but he's still getting by with it. Whereas Goldberg has had more issue with that. So Jericho would be able to take the bumps off of him and, and you know, get the thing to where it needed to be. But now the question is also... Whether Jericho at 52 wants to be taking those fucking jackhammers from this fucking guy when he's not as strong as he used to be with moving people around. so And would Goldberg want that to be his last match? That's a, you know, well, I mean, my God, um, if he's winning and he's getting paid and it's a, a major star in the pecking order that's putting him over then would he complain about if that's the only one available he don't like him too fuck it at that point as mama Cornette used to say you'd complain if i hung you with a brand new rope all right well there's one of those mama Cornette sayings but there you go you know maybe to do these things you'd have to renovate the booking and then renovate the way chris jericho has been used and perhaps you also want to renovate a bathroom well, that's exactly right, Brian. And if I hadn't hit the wrong goddamn button, I would have I would have jumped in and talked about that even more quickly. But you know, renovating things, renovation is is the key. You got to keep things good. You got to keep things moving along. You got to keep things constantly changing and growing and expanding and refining things. For example, you don't want a rotten, moldy bathtub, do you, Brian? Certainly not. Never. Absolutely not. Because then when you make your various alcoholic beverage of choice in said bathroom, it gets a funky taste to it. And you don't want a rotten old shower because then whenever you take your dog into the shower to hose him off because he's had a mud fight with his friends and neighbors that are, you know, from around the neighborhood, well, then... You're just you're you're just getting your dog all dirty. You've had that happen with Swami, haven't you? You got to take him in the shower and hose him down a little bit. No, I haven't had that happen. Well, it's it, see, you don't live far enough out in the woods. But anyway, <laughs> folks, if you've got a rotten or crummy bathtub or shower and you need renovation to your bathroom, as a matter of fact, they ought to they ought to build the whole Hall of Fame. I think our friends at West Shore Home should at least get the contract for all the bathrooms in the WWE Hall of Fame when they build the brick-and-mortar location. But nevertheless... In Reseda or Cucamonga? 
Oh, actually, Anaheim. It's oh, right in between. See. But see, folks, again, if you want a a bathtub or shower that is clean as a whistle, that is slicker than whale blubber in an ice flow, say no more. West Shore Home is the fastest growing shower and bath remodeling company in the United States, and you have seen these incredible television commercials, the transformation of an old, dingy, dirty, rotten, grotten-infested shower or bathtub in just one day is turned into a brand new space-age work of art that, my God, when you run your finger across these things, they squeak, they're so clean. Just squeak, just like that. Just squeak. And they do it, as we said, in one day in time for dinner. Now, if you're old, 70, 75, 80 years old, and you eat at 3.30, 3.45 in the afternoon, we may not be able to help you. You may have to have supper instead of dinner because they probably ain't going to be finished till about five or quarter after. But nevertheless, you're going to have a better looking bathtub or shower. And if you're that old, you're probably cleaning yourself more often than you're eating those days. So you got that to look forward to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but you don't have, Brian, and the older you get, the more you have to clean yourself. And then when you. Is this a problem you're currently uh, going through? Well, I've noticed it progressively all my life the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. By the 80s, I'm just going to have to be sandblasted. But anyway, folks, again, they'll take your old shower or bath out. They'll throw it in the backyard, let the neighborhood kids play in it. They will install a brand new one. They'll do all the cleanup. It'll be ready before dinner. And they've got all the space-age options like laser-etched designs in the showers and built-in seats and the shower and shelves and doors and the tubs and the magnetic shower heads. Windows, here's a thing. And I'll tell you what, the lady across the street that lives across the street from us, she had West Shore Homes put a window at her shower, and boy, with my bird-watching binoculars at her shower window, I've never enjoyed mornings more. He's joking, ladies and gentlemen. Jim Cornette is not a peeping Tom, and West Shore Home, of course, are not peeping Toms. They will fix your bathtub, and you won't have to worry about peeping Toms or being one. Hey, if you're going to put a window in your shower, then you're putting your fucking goods on display. You've got to expect people to fucking browse. But folks, again, this is effortless for you. <laughs> yes, it is. For it who? Takes, for, not for me. For who? It takes no more effort for you than, than to lift a finger, to, to press the button on the phone. And they'll do all the work from there, the folks at West Shore Home. It's easy. It's convenient. It's even nutritious. Because you'll be able to eat off this shower or bathtub if that's the kind of thing you want to do. But when your mother-in-law comes over, if she sits in the bathtub, bleach it before you eat out of it. Anyway, right now, happiness is just a phone call away with that finger I was talking about. Use your finger and check out promo.westshorehome.com backslash gym. And you will get all the information on what West Shore Home can do for you, showers and bathtubs, and windows and doors. They got that going for them, too. In certain locations, maybe you'll be a lucky one. Again, promo.westshorehome.com backslash Jim. Happiness is just a, a literally a finger away from either pressing the phone or the button on your computer or whatever. If, and I say if, you live. 
in the following locations. Oh, boy. Louisville, Lexington, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Pittsburgh, Harrisburg, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Richmond, Salisbury, Virginia Beach, Winston-Salem, Charlotte, Greenville, Asheville, Knoxville, Chattanooga, Charleston, Wilmington, Myrtle Beach, Greenville, New Bern, Columbia, Atlanta, Jacksonville, Orlando, Ocala, Tampa, Birmingham, Huntsville, Montgomery, Oklahoma City, Houston, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, Phoenix, Denver, Colorado Springs, and Salt Lake City. I've been everywhere, man promo.westshorehome.com slash Jim. That's right, and West Shore Home could certainly renovate your bathroom, <laughs> renovate your shower, renovate your windows and doors, but wrestling... How about the cramp I got in my side? Can they renovate that? Someone else is going to have to help you with that, sir. But let's talk about some wrestling stuff before we get to the Raw review. A video that started going around the other day, it has now apparently been pulled down by AEW, there was footage from AEW's first house show. I forget what it is. The house rules or the house always wins, whatever it's called. And it was a match between Anna Jay and Britt Baker. Now, before you say anything, I'm assuming you saw it before it got pulled down. Yeah, well, I didn't. It was like six or seven minutes long, I think. And I, I saw the first couple minutes of it, and as I skipped ahead, I saw a few more minutes. I was like, oh, I felt bad for him. We've talked about the issues with the women's division. That match, and, you know, I tweeted out, it's easy to laugh about it, but this is why they need house shows. If you watch that match, it looked like Anna Jay was doing a dance routine, and Britt Baker had two left feet. Yes. And, I mean, when I say dance routine, you know, we joke sometimes like Kenny Omega is doing a dance routine. That's more like physical ballet. A dance routine is one, two, three, kick, cha-cha-cha. <laughs> That's what it was. One, two, spin, do this. Swing your partner, do -si do poke him in the eye and step on his toe. It was two people that shouldn't have been out there together, but it seemed like they didn't know how to just work a match. They didn't know how to just listen to the room. Whatever match they were going to do, they were going to do no matter what crowd was there. The crowd was silent during the match. What are your thoughts on any of this? And of course, AEW pulling down the footage. Well, and, and <laughs> I mean, they ought to burn the footage. Um, yes, it was a fan cam thing. And, and you mentioned, because somebody was, you know, making mockery of it. And you say, yeah, that is actually why they need house shows. And, you know, unfortunately, they, they had apparently 3,000 people in Troy, Ohio. This match should have been on in front of 85 people at the fucking local church gym in Louisville or Cincinnati or some training school, to be quite honest. It, because this is the kind of match that, you know, if you had 3,000 people in the building and saw this in the old days, you wouldn't have 3,000 the next time you ran it. So that's, that's the issue, is they not only need more spot or house shows, but I know that I saw the card and, and the fact that they got 3,000 people to this show is because Moxley's from Ohio and it's, uh, it's down the road from his hometown. Well, plus they had 20, it, $20 general admission, which I think is a good idea. Good Lord, that sounds like twice as much as it should be to me for basically a, a training exercise because that's what they did. They booked a bunch of their green guys and they should to get experience, but if they're going to be in a position where they can even draw 3,000 people to house shows, they need to have a separate level for people who are having matches like this. 
because that one, you know, is going to kill your fucking house of 3,000 people. But yes, they all need more uh, practice. And the problem with the Britt Baker and Anna Jay match that I saw is that, like you said, not only were they going to go out there and have the match they planned to have, regardless of what was going on or how it was proceeding along, but they planned to have the wrong fucking match to begin with because they were, they were doing a lot of reverse and back and forth and duck and do si do and whatever the fuck. And especially at Anna Jay's level and my God, she's the one they just power bombed off the stage and dislocated all her ribs and had her fucking uterus up in her watch pocket or whatever. It literally should have been Britt Baker saying we I will call this in the ring listen to me and we're going to do eight solid minutes where you don't look bad and hurt yourself or me because she was the experienced one and then it should okay lock up take my head one tackle drop down hip toss move on the elbow get it again whatever the fuck and <sighs> Instead, they were trying to do all the shit they tried to do on television. And when it didn't work, they wouldn't grab a hold and headlock takeover. And yeah. okay, we're here in Troy, Ohio at the fucking field house. And I'm going to hold a headlock on you for 30 seconds so I can calm you down and suggest something simple you can do. And the fans are not in that time going to set seats on fire. Now... <laughs> Shoot me off. I'll give you one tackle. Drop down. Hip toss me. I'll kick you off. I'll get up. Fucking arm drag. And back down we go. And let's see if we can get that right. Then we'll make it a little more difficult from there. We'll add a step or two until we lose it. Then we'll reevaluate again. It's... It, it, <laughs> They were trying to have some kind of pay-per-view match or whatever that where they just never grab a hold, never stop, and are constantly doing some something so that when they get off kilter, they can't figure it fucking out. And I'm not I'm 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 not blistering those two either because Rhea Ripley and Bailey, as we'll talk about on Raw, they were doing the same thing, not as bad, but it was there. Go ahead. I thought this was just an indictment of the AEW women's division. Britt Baker is supposed to be one of their top stars. She's been one of the most pushed people there. She's had good moments, but it appeared Britt Baker didn't know how to work. And, you know, here Anna Jay's worked. They signed her after she had five matches. I believe she's worked on Dark and on various YouTube shows. And, of course, we've seen her a handful of times on TV actually work matches. What's going on over there? I mean, the other thing a lot of people who saw this came out of it saying they've got a lot of women who or a lot of people, I should say, come out of QT's gym or train with QT's people. This was as big a sign that they need a developmental system of their own than anything, wouldn't you say? Well, yes. I mean, everybody there needs more work. I won't say everybody. I don't know, Jericho doesn't need any more practice. But um, Britt Baker, we've seen her have good matches. It's not that she can't work. It's that she's not experienced enough or potentially hardly at all in leading somebody who has almost no experience of note or merit 
And once that that gets sideways, then she's trying to send out shit by mental telepathy and it throws her off her fucking game. And in a situation like that, it's not saying that she can't do it at all with anybody. She couldn't do it with Anna Jay. And Anna Jay may not really be able to do this with everybody or anybody. But yeah, I mean, this was not... Again, that's why I say, even though it's a house show, and there's, oh, we need house shows for guys to get experience. Experience is one thing. This is basic fucking training. And I don't think that there needs to be a lower level than house shows with 3,000 people for the quality of match that this is. That needs to be, that was what an OVW or a developmental program was for. Based on what you saw here, let's look at Anna Jay specifically, because Britt Baker's been around a little bit longer, although I think this was a big expose on Britt Baker's ability, quite frankly. But Anna Jay comes out of that QT Marshall school. Without this being just an indictment on that, from what you saw, is she being taught how to wrestle or how to do routines, how to do spots? Well, that's... Again, that's the thing, is they should have known. I mean, if... If Rip Rogers had had a hand in any of this, he would have been screaming, grab a fucking hold! They just keep continuing to do a set routine that they have in their mind that they got before they went out there, that they were trying to accomplish, and it was falling apart in various places. And instead of just saying, fuck it, grab a hold, let's figure this out, let's keep it simple, let's not stink the joint out, they just continued doing the same thing. Maybe that's the way they're teaching the young folks these days. But it's not the way that you would have been taught in any kind of fucking wrestling school that I've ever been involved in. If it's not going well, don't do more of the shit that's not working. Stop, grab a hold, get everybody on the same page, assess the situation, start with the basics and gear back from there. Beyond that match, Jim, what are your thoughts on AEW now running a series of house shows? Should they do this every single weekend? They had a lot of matches that people thought weren't necessarily marquee matches. Like you said, Moxley was probably the big draw, the big star on the show, local guy. Not necessarily a high-profile match. What should these house shows be? Well, that's the thing is if they're wanting to make money with their house shows and they do have a dedicated fan base that will come to various points and see them, not 52 times a year like the old days, but they can't... That's the thing is, they do need to put their younger talent on the house shows to get them more experience, but they still have to have main event guys, or then it becomes, you know, basically a fucking training show that you're renting a big arena and expecting people to come and in in fairly large numbers, you can't have both of those things. Maybe on the first couple of matches, yes, you can have some guys that are a little greener or whatever, but you've still got to book some of your names and some of your top guys. It can't just be a training match program unless you're... <laughs> You're fucking booking them like training match programs and smaller buildings where the guys can have some time and do whatever the fuck, but, you know, they're going to kill their house show business if they put every fucking greenhorn on the house shows and none of the top talent. And I, like I said, Moxley was there because it's close to his hometown and there were very few other names on the program. 
Uh, let's see the next one they do, what that lineup is. Are they going to try to go close to a fucking main event guy's house so he can be on the card? I don't know. But again, from what I saw, if there was 3,000 people at a fucking house show and they saw that match, I would be shitting myself if I was the promoter. Never wanting to fucking do that again. If there was 150 or 200, that's about what they need to get some fucking experience. There were reports earlier this week that Moxley didn't necessarily want to do AEW house shows. And I wanted to ask you the question about, if you're one of the AEW stars, someone who's been there since the beginning, the Elite, Moxley, whoever may be, MJF, any of these guys who have been pushed as top guys in AEW, and you've been getting paid and working a certain way for three and a half years, four years, whatever it may be now, should you be expected to just work the house shows? Well, it's so bizarre to me just to hear wrestlers that don't want to work the house shows. I only want to be on TV because, again, well, not only is that half-assing it or thinking that you've uh, reached a status in the wrestling business and maybe you've, you're putting yourself in a little grandiose position. Oh, I'm above that now. I'll only do the TV. But when we started in the business, you, you did TV so you'd be on the house show. The only way you got to be on the house show is if you'd put up with doing the fucking TV. Right now, it's completely flip-flopped. Oh, I don't want to do house show, just TV. But, I'm so, you know, if Moxley didn't take stupid bumps and fucking slice himself from asshole to appetite all the time, maybe he'd have more get-up-and-go and energy to want to do the house shows. But the house I believe show, he bled, by the way, too, on the house show. Oh, of course he did. No, I saw the pictures, yeah. Because he's got to do that, too, for some reason, because he's demented. But... <laughs> Again, if they want to, why do it unless it's a business and they're going to make money? Either if they're going to open up a developmental program so some of their wrestlers might be able to learn how to work and not fucking kill each other, that's a positive. But if they're going to be doing house shows attempting to draw and make money, those lineups need good cards with top guys on them to sell tickets so the people will go and have a good time and they won't get the word around that all oh, shit all we saw was a bunch of fucking greenhorns you know doing a sloppy two-step with each other and one main event guy so that's one thing secondly these alleged wrestlers are going to have to learn how to work house show matches in big buildings which are not the same thing as working TV matches in big buildings or working indie matches in any kind of building. Because they're either going to be going 100 miles an hour because that's what they're all doing on the indies, or they're going 100 miles an hour because they only have a certain amount of time on television. But now when they get in a big building for a house show, that's where they learn to work. That's how they learn to get their personality over. That's how they learn to fucking get with the people and fucking work them and what what the people respond to and what they don't and take their time with it. If they're out there running through the goddamn thing at 100 miles an hour, like they do the TV matches and the indie matches, then they're not getting the benefit of the big building and the big crowd. There's always, there's different style. And then let's say that all of their 
AEW house shows are not just Troy, Ohio in front of 3,000 people. Might they goddamn work up sometime to where they do big non-televised house shows like the good old days where you got to buy tickets, see what's going to fucking happen. And then you want your big lineup because you can make a ridiculous amount of money in wrestling on house shows if a lot of people buy tickets to them. That just hadn't happened in so long. I know it's it's dimmed people's memories. But uh, so I, I, they're trying to do everything. But that's Tony. He tries to do everything. Yes, he needs a developmental program. Yes, he needs a goddamn identity for his entire Ring of Honor promotion that is just going to be more put-together matches that make no sense. Um, He needs somebody to promote and book his series of house shows if he wants to have them that understands the house show business and how not to have all the guys go out there and do TV matches where they get hurt or fucking embarrass the goddamn whole promotion. But he's also got pay-per-views to take care of and he also a new reality show. And he's going to be popping the corn for the Jaguars at intermission. So yeah, they need a lot of shit going on over there. Well, Jim, speaking of where things are going on, let's talk about WWE Raw, which was an interesting program this week. Of course, we're getting closer and closer to WrestleMania. There are a lot of stories that need to be tied together, things that need to come to a conclusion. and Things that need to come to a head. I'll tell you, watching this show, it hit me just how good this Bloodline storyline is. It held me through this show just to see what would happen at the end. Yes, and especially because I think almost two hours in, we were at 10 minutes of actual wrestling on screen. (laughs) (laughs) So, and I mean, that's what it's, that's what it is. It's basically let me watch Raw for anything involving the bloodline and their ancillary opponents and partners and et cetera. And then they just, you know, break in every once in a while with a match involving some goof you don't really give a shit about. And they started this program. This was the Raw for March 20th. So we've only got 10, 11, 12 days, whatever. But they started with Kevin Owens coming out. And and he got a, a pop, but then they transitioned to the Sammy music and the fans lose their shit. And then, and for a long time, especially like in the Ring of Honor days, it was like Steen was the, the guy and Generico was the little buddy. And now the, the worms have turned. Uh, But I like that when they enter together and they get in the ring, I like it. These two raggedy-looking fucking putzes that look like shit, but they've defied the odds and they've gotten over. They're the odd couple. Now, as a team, they can both look like shit, and it's kind of, it's the gimmick. They can work and talk, and they appeal to the every fan in the audience. So, as an individual... Owens looks like complete shit to be the top guy. And Sammy is painfully thin. And they neither one are, they're unkempt in their appearance, but they can work and talk. And as a team, both of them together looking like shit, it works. It's the motif. Now I like it. Okay? It's the way you present things. They can both wisecrack, and it's and they interplay with each other because they've been doing it for years since before they got into business when they were dreaming of getting into business because they're friends. And 
That's the one thing Owen said for 20 years. I've been your biggest fan. At this point, they need to shave a couple of years off of that because I can see some people in the audience, younger people going, how the fuck old are these fucking guys? It doesn't look like they should have been wrestlers for 20 years. Nevertheless, and then they start talking about getting together and WrestleMania, and then the Usos come out. And Jay's like, Sammy, you're a backstabber. Ain't nothing going to happen at WrestleMania, or Jimmy was, rather. But it, Owens gives the big challenge. You know, brothers versus brothers for the tag team title. What about it? Yeah, rah, rah. And Jimmy refuses, but Jay said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, that's our chance to end this, fix our problem with you once and for all. So Jay agrees to it. And then as soon as he does, then they get in the big fight and the Usos powder out. They're in the entrance way. They grab some chairs. Here come the referees and the agents. And suddenly on the screen, <laughs> Roman Reigns' SUV pulls up and Solo and Roman get at. Roman gets a huge pop getting out of his car on a big screen. And send the fight stopped because I, obviously, Why Brian, every stop? time you, <laughs> you get in a, a, a street riot, whenever a, they show a picture on television of a movie star pulling up in their SUV, instantly the fight stops. I, but, but still, it's good. Uh, but no, but this stuff is so good. So that's, you know, again, now we've got the tag team title match. We talked about that on the show a couple of days ago. I said, well, maybe they could make it a grudge lights out match and not for the title and put the baby faces over, but still leave somewhere to go. But it appears to me that unless, unless strange things happen and one of the baby faces here ends up looking like a plate full of piss that a lot of belts have to change hands. I'll tell you the Usos have really won me over on the mic. Their facial expressions, the way they move, you know, you look at their face and you don't think this is a guy reading lines. These seem like guys really going through some sort of emotion out there yeah. <laughs> dealing with all this. They've been great. I thought Owens was good here. Just finally, they needed to get to that moment. Okay, let's settle it. Let's have the match. I was certain they would have gone like no DQ or something because that's what this is, this company. But they've got me to the point where I'm excited to see what this tag team match with the Usos against Zayn and Owens will be. Well, and then there's, there's still more strife or tension or whatever, as we will see in a second. Oh, let, let's get the wrestling out of the way. Uh, Theory beat Montez Ford in about four minutes on camera, that is. Any um, thoughts on Montez Ford watching him in this match? It, uh, no, because I didn't bother because it was two minutes before the break and two minutes after the break with the fucking replay. And yes, Montez Ford, great high cross bodies, and he's incredibly athletic. And I love theory to death. But this is, again, it's a match on Raw, which means that's time for everybody to go piss and get a fucking sandwich. So it just, it was what it was. But then... We come back to Roman and Paul with the Usos and Solo and Roman sitting, you know, they're in their locker room and there the Usos have just had their asses handed to them and Roman says, well, wasn't the best start to the night. Guys, okay? You know, and Jimmy's like, I'm never going to forgive Sami Zayn, but we're going to settle this and blah, blah, blah. To me, it was almost a swerve. Uh, not a swerve, but 
They made you think he was laying in the Roman when he, at the end, said it was Oh, yeah, I, I got you. Yeah, when he said, yeah, I'm sick and tired and fed up of being browbeaten and berated or whatever he said, and Roman started giving the little side eye, and he said, that no good Sami Zayn. Okay. I have to answer for what I'm doing. I have to answer for my relationship with my brother. I'm sick of it, and you think he's going to say, I've had enough yeah. of Roman Reigns, which plays into the Cody promo later, actually, and instead it's about Sami. But it's also Jimmy saying that. Instead of Jay, when Jay was there, say there's so many ways they can go here. And that's when Roman kicks everybody out of the room except Jay, and Jay's sitting there all nervous. So they go to the break, and then they come back. And that's where Roman is telling Jay, so what, I haven't seen from you, or seen from you. I haven't seen you. I haven't heard from you. You know, you leave us hanging. Now you're back making decisions. Are you are you bloodline? Are you part of my family? And that's where Jay says he is not a not a Sami Zayn pleading. Yes, Roman, believe me, just I'm your family blood. I'm I'm a I'm bloodline. And so Roman says, "Well, I hope so. That's that's all I needed to hear. I love you." And then Jay leaves, and Paul slams in, <laughs> just creeps in. Did you get your answers? You were looking for my tribal chief. And Roman says, yes, ominously. It sounded like when he was telling Jay he loved him, almost like one of those Marlon Brando, Brando and the Godfather, I love you type of things. Hello, Carlo. You know, so it, it, so which, which way are they going here? You know, this so, was so good. I got lost in it for a moment that it didn't bother me that the camera was right in front of them. That they went to a commercial break on Jay Uso twitching, as yeah. opposed to any like, we'll be right back after this. No, sit down. I want to talk to you. What's going to happen? They go to commercial. They come back. To all the conversation lately, and I think Heyman's even said something publicly about these guys winning an Emmy or something. It really was telling when they finished this and they went back to the arena and it's Corey Graves and uh the light speaking man i forget what his name the is light speaking man oh i'm so happy to be here yeah that guy when they went back it was almost like another world when you heard the crowd and everything else the i hate to use the word but the acting in this from all of these participants has been amongst the best in wrestling on tv ever yeah say delivery the delivery well we'll the see delivery. roman reigns is going hollywood i think but the delivery yeah <laughs> Oh, uh, and then we went back to reality and almost beat Muhammad Ali with two double hand shoves and a choke slam. Are you now really pumped up for almost versus Brock? Oh boy, how in the I'm interested <laughs> to see what's gonna happen. I'll put it that way. Um I th eh, I shouldn't say anything. What? Go I I said it a while back that I thought they were reuniting. Lashley with the Hurt Business. And now that Lashley has no match with Bray Wyatt, at least we don't believe that's going to happen at this point. They kind of left it where the last time these guys wrestled and Lesnar got the better of most of those matches, Lesnar hit him in the balls to win the match, to lose the match. He didn't have to face Bray, who challenged a winner. But now that match isn't going to happen. Lashley's going nowhere right now. You can't do too much with almost. I could see this turning into a hurt business reunion to kick the shit out of Lesnar at Mania. Well, that would be probably better than what 
may happen if it doesn't happen. How's that sound? I, I, I don't know, actually. Good or bad? <laughs> one or the other? I don't know. Figure it out. <laughs> it's a double negative. The horribleness and awfulness of it will never be forgotten. Did you watch any of this Logan Paul thing fiasco? I did because I like him. In my world, he's the baby face. And this thing with him and Seth Rollins, who not only yeah. sounds like the nanny, this week he was dressed like the nanny. Wow. Just coming ah! Do your laundry. I don't even know what the nanny says. I never watched that show. <laughs> Do your laundry. Take your lunch to school. I don't know what goes on on that show, but I can't stand Rollins. I like Logan Paul a lot. I like the replay of that punch. It was a great punch. And then when, well, I'll let you cover it, but when Seth Rollins almost dove onto his head, oh, and I'm like, oh my God, and I had to rewind it. I was watching live. I had to rewind it just to see how he landed. And then he gets up and gets knocked out again. I like that. I did like that. Well, and the the part was that the, what they were trying with that was that it would look in some way like Seth was diving off trying to get to Logan Paul. <laughs> he and, was nowhere near him. But he and Logan <laughs> Paul had exited stage left like 10 seconds beforehand, so it looked like Seth just tried to dive completely over the two producers that were standing there to catch him. But nevertheless, Logan Paul gets in the ring for an interview, and I... I'm like you. I like the fucking guy because he's such an arrogant, obnoxious, dickish, heelish personality. He's great. And he does the promo. It said he loves the WWE, but the fans don't love him. They're never going to respect him, but I don't care. And because before, I think he wanted to, didn't we hear he wanted to be a babyface? Well, I think they wanted him to be a babyface. Uh, maybe a better way of saying it. I did, Well, however, no, the wrestling fans were not going to make him a baby face because he's a celebrity crossing over into wrestling. They resent that. Uh, that's, you know, but now that he's embracing his heel self, he healed and bragged and put himself over and he's glib and he's got that heelish personality. But anyway, that's where I've, I've made note that he was doing a hell of a job with the promo and even making the what's work for him. It wasn't just throwing him all off because these people were a whatting crowd. They even whatted Roman for fuck's sake. Um, That's the worst thing that Steve Austin ever did to the yeah, wrestling business. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, I'll tell you what. Uh, but the, the, the knockout they played over and over with Seth with the clown face and the sound effects and everything, that was funny. And I'm just thinking, oh, this, this, I'm really liking this. And then his microphone goes out. And then the other mic goes out. And then you see the video of Seth Franklin Rollins in the, in the video truck, looking like Stevie Wonder at the keyboard with the sunglasses and his weird getup. And he's obviously fucking with the production and then plays his music and dances and gyrates his way to the ring. And then, they just pretty much, he just leg dives Logan Paul and they try to roll out and get stuck under the ropes. And then here come the referees and agents and they go over the announce desk and that's when Seth does the big dive where Logan Paul was already way gone. And Seth goes over, I, I can't remember which agents it was, but they're trying to catch him. He went over and almost landed on his fucking head. And then jumps up and turns jumped up turned around and picked a bale of fucking knuckles and 
I liked Logan Paul knocking him out with one punch again, but honestly, the Charlotte and Rhea Ripley fight Friday night was better as far as a pull-apart, don't you think? That was a better pull-apart. Again, I like the spectacle, and things did go awry. Like you said, Logan Paul was clearly supposed to be somewhere near <laughs> where Seth Rollins jumped to. Instead, he just head or shoulder first went onto some other generic people just so Logan Paul could run in there. And what a punch. It looks great. Who throws a better looking punch than that right now? Yeah. And give the devil his due. Seth Franklin is doing a heck of a job of selling them right down on his mush. But again, to me, it's such a horrible gimmick. If you can call it that, I don't know what it is. I don't know what the gimmick is. People like singing that song more than I think they like anything he has to say. Oh, yeah, I'm at the point now where I'm just zipping through the promos because, like you said, you know, like you want to be there for Leonard Bernstein conducting. You don't necessarily want to hear him sing. And when he's out there conducting the fans doing, and that's the secret to any wrestling success nowadays. They like that. But as soon as no one wants that, no one. But besides that, you know, Le- Leonard Bernstein, if he, you know, took a few practice swings at it, could probably belt out a pretty decent tune. But I, I just don't know. Maybe they should have some type of backstory explanation where Seth was exposed to gamma radiation or, you know, the subject of a chemical experiment gone wrong or whatever. And that turned him into Seth Franklin Rollins. Just some explanation. People said I had no personality, so now there's synthetic personality pouring out of everywhere. Ah! Awful. <laughs> Terrible. Hey, that's synthetic personality. You can get that at Valvoline also. All right, so Johnny Sameface wrestled Dominic Mysterio. They went two minutes to the break, and they came back and went three minutes, and Dominic won with a splash off the top. And then we got back to the wrestling. So Paul Heyman is in the back. Well, hold on. Did you listen to Dominic's promo? (laughs) No, I didn't. I got a kick out of this promo. Again, What'd he say? They're making him out to be a putz, but in such a good way. You know, like all the stuff about him being in prison and the things he learned in prison. (laughs) Like all of these things. But here, and uh, a couple of my kids were here watching this with me. It was about how his family disrespected him. They took him out of the group chat, which to me, was one of the funniest fucking lines ever. Because most families, I would think, if you're all on smartphones, there may be a group chat so everyone could keep up with what everyone else is doing. Okay, see, all this would have gone right past me anyway. The idea that his mom and sister and dad took him out of the family group chat and he's upset about it. Well, that, how dare they? That killed me. I th- and then he turned to Dominic, uh, not Dominic, he turned to uh, Damien, and he goes, but our group chat is better. And Damien nodded his head. I, I did get a kick out of that. I like Dominic in this role. And I'm glad, they didn't, I'm glad they didn't put Gargano over. Maybe the experiment's over. Maybe they realize this is not Brian Danielson or any of the other guys that weren't giant-sized wrestlers that somehow got over on their ability. This is a different guy, and I don't think he's taking. That was, to be honest, a, a, a sliver ray of hope in this. But uh, I'm more interested now in the the group chat. How come I'm not in your group chat? Because you don't have a smartphone. Well, but now I feel bad, too. Like, you, you've you never asked me to get a smartphone, so I would be in your group chat. Would you like You've never be? made an effort to put put me in that. I would love to have you in the group chat. Would you like to be in the group chat? 
Fuck no, I'm not getting a goddamn smartphone. I just wanted you to ask me. Well, Raw rolls on. So, Paul was in the back and tells the Usos and Solo, take the night off and go to the plane and eat the seafood. We got the shrimp, we got the mahi-mahi. He never mentions uh, the scallops. Why do the scallops not get mentioned? Well, the mahi-mahi was a nice thing to add here this week. I, I'm, I'm a scallop fan. But anyway, uh, he says that, oh, Solo, stay. Roman wants to talk to you. So the Usos go eat the mahi-mahi and Solo stays. But they all give each other a look like, what's this? Our other brother, yes. he's supposed to stay, but we're supposed to leave. What's going on? So you never know what's going on. It just constantly builds and you never know what's going <laughs> to I'm telling you, I'm, I've become such a mark for this bloodline stuff. I realize it going through this show. Like, is this the formula that could work going forward? Find one really, really, really good thing. Make sure it stays good. Make sure it stays interesting. Make sure no one can completely predict what's going to happen. And the rest of the show could be fluff. Well, fuck, that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so speaking of fluff, so now Edge is doing the spooky candlelit promos. And remember when I always said, I like Edge, is he's well-spoken and he delivers it with feeling and etc. And you said, oh, he was just acting. Well, you were right. This was a horror movie scene. I mean, it was long on acting and short on real, like, I really just want to beat you up. I mean, it, it, he's trying to make himself like the second coming of Hannibal Lecter if you push him too far. And I've been baptized in the cell by the dead man himself, my cathedral of pain. Well, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil. I'm the evil in the valley of death. I mean, this was, it was like a goddamn audition for a fucking hammer film, was it not? I don't want to go too long on this because I really said everything I had to say about it last week when I saw the other promo, which was in the ring. So it was a different feeling and setting it all together, but it was the same kind of speech to me. I like wrestling promos i don't like wrestling speeches this seemed like this just didn't seem like th this i didn't like this <laughs> i don't know what i could say i just don't like this kind of stuff and he keeps doing these kind of promos he's another one of these guys that got into acting after wrestling and maybe it's hard to shake that i don't know but i don't like this i don't think this resonates well well anyway um but we switched from taped talking to live talking Rhea Ripley in the ring for a promo and at this at this point I noticed it's an hour and 50 minutes into the program there's been 10 minutes of actual on-screen wrestling <laughs> and as much as I like Rhea now they've got the lighting effect they use for her she's in the ring and it's almost like she's giving a dramatic reading in a theater in the round setting and I love her, but I, I couldn't really get into this. And as, at that point, here comes Bailey and Kai and Sky, and they come out. And I'm like, what? Okay, they're other heels. Now, I know that Rhea's getting popular, but she's still technically a heel because she's in the heel group, and she's facing Charlotte, who is technically a baby face, even though she's a more natural heel. But now the other heel girls are mad at Rhea. 
They go to the break and they come back and obviously they have a match going with Rhea Ripley and Bailey. And boy, we we talked about we have to give some of the Anna Jay and Britt Baker advice to Rhea and Bailey, although they they took most of the advice, they they didn't click here, but at least they wouldn't they wouldn't just go blunder blindly through it. They would stop for a second and recharge their batteries and get on the same page and go again. There was a time Rhea wheels Bailey uh, buckle to buckle, boom, and she's going to charge. And obviously, Bailey is going to boost her up over the top for a spot, but Rhea charges and Bailey doesn't boost, and Rhea just has to just run into her. And there was another spot where. Rhea's coming off the ropes with speed after doing something, is going to do something, but Bailey doesn't move. She just lays there, and Rhea just, ah, I'll kick you. But he, they would grab something, and they'd get back in the right place, and they'd do it again, but this didn't flow. It didn't click. And after about four minutes or so, then here comes... Becky and Trish and Lita with a music entrance in the middle of the match, and that was the break spot. Well, we've got a subpar girls match going on, so we're going to bring more girls to ringside. And stay with us. And they came back and finally the girls on the floor all got in a fight, and Rhea Ripley hit her finish. Boom, there you go. And then uh, just can we move on through the rest of the wrestling that got in the way so we can get back to our bloodline promo? I'll just say I'm a big fan of Rhea Ripley. I think Rhea Ripley and Bianca Belair are almost like two perfect female wrestlers. I think they're so good. This promo went way too long. I don't know why they did this with Bailey right now. I thought this didn't make Bailey in the ring look very good. But I like Rhea Ripley. I think they should I think if you want her to be a bigger star, you shouldn't have her come out there and do speeches like everyone else. Well, no, and this match, I can kind of excuse them for because they would have thought, and I would have thought that it would be good, but it didn't work. Maybe they just haven't worked a lot together. I don't know. Nevertheless, then Ricochet wrestled Shoosh Boy, and Oscar and Bianca wrestled Chelsea and Piper. Not Roddy, but Niven. I watched a little bit of that tag match, and I didn't think I would just because I wasn't too interested in seeing Niven and Chelsea Green. And I haven't liked Asuka with her new gimmick, with whatever the new gimmick is. But Bianca pulled me into this. She's so athletic. Just the way she jumped over the top rope to come in there. She did the power move to Piper Niven. Now, wait a minute. You're starting to sound like some of those Rehoites there. Bianca Belair is a big athlete. I'm not trying to start to sound like a Rehoite. Bianca Belair is really, really good. I'm not saying she's not good, but you're sounding like such praise. Oh, the way she jumps. She jumps. Look at her jump. She jumped from she the jumped. apron over the top rope into the ring better than most male wrestlers. She jumped all the way over the top rope and look at her legs. Oh, they go all the it. way to the ground. Will you stop it? Come on. You know I'm being fair telling the truth. A hey. Rehoite. Get out of here. Yeah. A Rehoite. <laughs> All right, nevertheless, the moment we've been waiting for, and we still had to wait for a little bit of it, at 10.45 Eastern Time, the Bloodline entrance begins. 
Roman, Paul, and Solo, here they come. At 10.49, Roman Reigns asks for the microphone. At 10.50, he asks St. Louis to acknowledge him. And then immediately Cody's music hits, and he does his entrance and gets his chance. And at 10.52, he spoke his first word. So they literally had entrances the same length as the goddamn segment that took place after the entrances, which I was just found tickling to me. But never, it takes a while to get it in the ring. But once they got there, this was, again, fucking brilliant. And I don't know now that if, if Roman Reigns may not have been the best promo in this set, Cody did great, but Roman was exceptional. And from the time that Cody asked, you know, is it what you've been saying? You got a Cody problem. What do you mean by a Cody problem? And Paul starts to say something and Cody's like, I'm not talking to you. But Roman told him, you're not the problem. It's what you represent. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a fighter. I'm in God mode, right? You're just a pro wrestler. And look at your track record. You ran away from Stardust. You, you ran away and started a company that you couldn't get over in and then ran away from that. How, how many times would in, in previous eras would a line like that even been able to make WWE television? Not too many. But they they know now that I think Triple H knows. I still Vince probably wouldn't go for it, but Triple H knows they've got an overall smaller audience than they ever have, and most of the people that still follow wrestling know what the fuck's happening. But anyway, and he says, then you come here and you get over and your body quit on you. Your peck went pop. And, you know, April 3rd, you're going to have to get up and look in the mirror and you're going to run like a little bitch. And then Cody admitted that he did run away. And what he did was make it where 100% of the locker room could make more money. I think he's a little touchy there. Uh, well, you know but what, anyway. You know, but you know what Go part ahead. of the problem is for that one specific thing? And I don't think it's a fair line. Obviously, it's a line here in a promo. You ran away to start that other company and you couldn't get over there. And he said, well, I did that and 100% of the locker room makes more money. There aren't too many defenses for that in a promo. Like, what else is he going to say? Yeah. <laughs> he goes, well, you know, but goddamn, I'm back and 10 pounds heavier. But nevertheless, he said, uh, you know, maybe he just is a pro wrestler, but nobody needs to bring my dad up again because at WrestleMania, you're going to see me. And then he fired up at him and cut a promo on April 2nd at WrestleMania. And on April 3rd, Roman, you're going to wake up without those titles. And then Jay and Jimmy will leave you and Solo and then Paul. And then you're going to be a Roman with no more reigns and a chief without a tribe. And he just told him off. And Roman sits there, stands there, and then just dropped the microphone and started walking out. And Paul goes with him. And in Solo and Cody face off, because Cody's trash talking Solo. But Roman and Paul get halfway down the aisle and turn around. What's he doing? And they pull fucking Solo out. Well, Solo goes to fucking blister Cody and Cody kicks him in the face. And Well, Cody goads him into 
doing yeah, something. Yeah, Co- Cody goads him, and then when he goes to do something, Cody gives him the boot, and as Solo's going to swing back, there Roman has got him, and he fucking stops him and calls him out. So now Solo's going into business for himself. But uh, but the the last you know, that last promo segment that did a great job again, like all this stuff has, of selling this issue. And now we got all the principals together: Sammy and Owens against the Usos, Cody against Roman. What will Solo do? You know, um, they've done a brilliant job on this, and both these guys could talk. But Roman was great here. Roman's promos are good. Sometimes for me, it gets a little bit too much into, and then I'm going to smash it like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I liked it here. But to me, the best thing about this with Roman was what he didn't say. When Cody would say something and Roman would start selling it in his face like you believed him. You know, the confidence was going away. When he said, your family's going to abandon you and you know it. It's going to happen to Jay and it's going to be Jimmy and eventually it'll be Solo. And eventually, Heyman will be for hire again. Yeah. <laughs> Watching Roman's face drop. He'll be a rent boy again. Well, I didn't say that. But watch him say rent, whatever. <laughs> Watching uh, Roman's face drop and then react to it. Again, the reactions were good. Both guys did incredibly strong promos. Cody's been doing the best work of his entire career in the last few months since the Royal Rumble. They've made me interested in Solo. The way Solo reacted here, how he was ready to do something. Remember, the Usos are his brothers. So he ties into all of that, too. Yeah. There is still so much up in the air, and that doesn't bother me. I'm looking forward. They've earned my trust with this program, that I'm looking forward to how it's going to play out. Well, there you go. So that was Raw. That was Raw, and... You know, Jim, speaking of Raw, a lot of people out there in society get a Raw deal. A lot of people, they get it up the back end. Metaphorically speaking, of hey! course. Hey! Metaphorically speaking, as I we say. we're going to talk about butt stuff. I'm not talking about butt stuff. I'm talking about real life. I'm talking about the real world. Are you getting it raw from a big corporation? Are you getting it raw right now? Well, Jim, I think there's a man they can call. Well, you did the fucking intro. Just play the music. Stephen P. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, if you feel like you're getting it up the old uh, rear entrance, if you're being perpetrated sort of like an in through the outdoor type of thing, if you would like something or someone that you could use as a metaphorical condom to prevent you from getting transmissible diseases from the various things that are being metaphorically inserted in you, well, the man, the myth, the legend, the guy to call for protection, whether he's ribbed for your pleasure or not, is Stephen P. New at newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. Brian, have you heard what's going on now in the new law office business and what Stephen P. New is doing? The, the flag that he is carrying, the crusade that he is on, 
to get justice for people. Have you heard about this? I don't know. What's going on? Well, families of 14 inmates who have died in a West Virginia jail in the past year are demanding a federal investigation as what, into what they say is negligence on the part of state authorities. The Southern Regional Jail in Beaver, West Virginia, has had 14 inmates in the past year die while in custody. Beaver, West Virginia is not that big a place, right? And the last one, the 14th death, a fellow who had been incarcerated for three months died of causes that are not yet known. However, there was another fella who I'm not going to give names, who died on March the 1st, less than 24 hours after being admitted to the jail. An independent autopsy found signs of blunt force trauma, fractured ribs, consistent with being handcuffed while being beaten. Both wrists broken, arm broken, nose broken, leg bone broken. Hmm. Wonder if the other inmates handcuffed him before they beat him up. And... 13 deaths in 2022 are up from only one death at the institution in 2018. So things are getting worse, and they're black and white inmates alike. Well, co-counsel in the lawsuit that has been filed, Stephen P. New, said a 1950s or 1960s Russian gulag could not have been worse than 2023 West Virginia. Prisoners killing each other, killing themselves. Guards instructing female gangs to beat up female prisoners. One of them who died in December after she was assaulted by other female inmates looking for drugs they suspected were hidden inside her body. And she was being held for shoplifting. So she got the death penalty for shoplifting. Anyway, they've had some whistleblowers, but more important than that, they've got Stephen P. New. Deplorable conditions, overcrowding, leaking toilets, lacks of mattresses, bugs, maggots. It's like WCW. Rotten, sounds like WCW. Rotten, crooked guards. The whole nine yards, the new law office is going to take all of this into advisement and Things will be done, and they can be done for you, too. If you've been wrongfully terminated, wrongfully imprisoned, wrongfully maligned, or just if you're, if you're wrong, Stephen P. New will take your case and get you justice, one way or the other. 888-692-8084, newlawoffice.com. That's right. Stephen P. New, he can help you today. So if you need help, Stephen P. New, we'll have more information at the end of the show. But Jim. Let's get a few questions from the Cult of Cornet Facebook group before we talk about however much of the Jerry Lawler documentary we're going to talk about because they didn't cover a lot. Yeah, it was like the trailer, but we'll, we'll go into that. But let's get a few questions from the Cult of Cornet Facebook group. Jim. Brian. Dakota Rhodes wants to know, what would happen if the WWE swerves everyone and has Roman keep the title? Does it kill Cody? And what happens to the bloodline? Now, wait, well, first of all, back up. It's not Dakota Runnels, is it? I don't believe so, but the name okay. here is Dakota Rhodes. <laughs> uh, based, okay. There's a hometown that comes up if I hover over it. I don't think it is. 
Okay. Well, all right. Then what was the question again now that I've derailed the whole train of thought for everybody? What would happen if WWE swerves everyone and has Roman keep the title? Does it kill Cody? And what happens to the bloodline? (sighs) It is an interesting question because everyone is, I mean, probably correctly so, assuming Cody has to win the belt. Well, and sometimes there's a reason for people's you know, a pretty unanimous assumption is because it would, at this point, I would fear a Lugerfication. If, if, and the, the bloodline does not have to be dissolved completely, although, as we've talked about earlier, the threads are there for somebody to break out of it. But then there's, there's a lot of people in that family, so it's not like they'd be short of replacement if they needed it. But which one's going to go? That's the fun part, right? Blah, blah, blah. So to me, yes, it, it, you don't you don't trounce the goddamn every member of the bloodline. And it looks like maybe both titles will fall, although, you know, Zane and Owens is up in the air. But it it I'm sure they can come up with a creative finish, but maybe not. But even if you beat them for the belts, there's the Monday night raw after WrestleMania and there's the opportunity to do something, you know, shocking or, uh, to get the bloodline, uh, some of their heat back. Uh, I don't think they'd be going into this just saying, okay, we've thought as far as April 2nd and that's as far as we're going to think they have to know how they're coming out of it at this point. They've taken so much care with this that even Like, Heyman definitely knows, you know, pretty much what's going to happen and has to have had some input on where they're going from there, and he wouldn't just let them, well, we're just going to beat them and boom, piss in their mouth while they're down there, and then... So the bloodline will continue, and there will still be heat amongst these, you know, participants so that they can have rematches and lead to the next pay-per-views and et cetera. But I, it'd be hard to come up with a way for them to get out of putting the belt on Cody with this amount of build after now it's been souped up by him coming back from the gruesome, grisly injury. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's the right thing to do. I mean, there are different scenarios we could probably come up with, which... I mean, who are they going to make right now that would be better than Cody to beat Roman Reigns? And after almost a thousand days, for fuck's sake, uh, you know, it's not like it's going to harm his standing in the community that much. But I'm sorry, go ahead and finish. Well, you know, it's also Vince McMahon. So you always worry about the idea he loses his mind and does a WrestleMania 9 thing where all of a sudden at the end of the night, The Rock shows up and wins the belt in 10 seconds. I, I don't know because he's the he was there and in a firmer position and has had his hands and more pies, so to speak, than he does right now when they started the Cody thing. So it's not like he's against this angle. They've actually just reprised it and souped it up. The question was about swerve. Let me throw a different monkey wrench. I don't know what a I different throw. swerve? Uh, let me throw a different swerve at you. Not even a swerve. What if it's a double turn? Uh, uh, Cody walks no. away with Heyman. Roman and his family finally break up. Roman's on his own. 
You're going into the Raw after Mania. What's up with Cody? Now he's with Heyman? What's up with Roman? His family's abandoned him. He showed more weakness in his face this past week on Raw in that promo than he's ever shown on TV. Again, I'm not saying I would do that or it's the perfect thing, but I'm just coming up with possible That's, scenarios. Well, you've, you've, you've gone from WrestleMania to maybe Survivor Series in one night. Call me Tony Khan. Hey, Tony. Hi. You certainly are, but anyway, <laughs> that answer your question. So you don't think it would be a good idea for a swerve? I, I, I don't know. I would, I would swerve, be swerving at this point that drastically uh, right there that quickly. Because they, the, the family bloodline machinations can continue to, to keep going. And then just, just one Uso split off, but then the other one follows later because of something. Yeah, I mean, you, you can... Know, I saw one yesterday, I think it was on Facebook, and I hated it. But it was put in my head. I was like, God damn it, why did this guy put this in my head? What if Sammy ends up turning on Owens? <laughs> and it was all just to trap Owens, all of this with Sammy. No, no. And then no, Sammy that, goes in and helps Roman keep the belt reuniting the bloodline. No, that's that's when you'd get to fucking deal where the people in the stands stand up and turn their backs on the ring when he's <laughs> doing shit. They're like, no, fuck you. Now, no, this is too much. Who booked this? Russo? They, they've gotten Sammy in a nice little place. I don't think they're going to fuck with that either. Well, Jim, our next question from the Cult of Cornette Facebook group is from Lee Payne. Would Bret Hart have made a good NWA champion? Um, and I know now people are going to go, oh my God, that he didn't instantly answer. Oh yes, he would have. I don't know that Bret's. What makes a good NWA champion to you? Well, but here's the thing. Definitely in the ring, he could perform with anybody. But at the same time, was it what era of NWA champion? Was it the 70s where, you know, the Harley Race, Dory Funk Jr. era, they weren't strong promos, but they didn't have the Calgary style yet. Uh, that, that that would have probably, if Brett had had to work that schedule from the 70s, he'd probably have had knee replacements by the time he, you know, fucking uh, joined Vince. Um in the 80s, with the standard being flair and the, the promos, Brett wasn't there yet verbally. And really, it took until, you know, the, the whole Canada-USA thing for Brett's promos to be holy shit moments, right? Um, So I don't know. And Brett was always more of a... As he mentioned in his book, he didn't even really follow the NWA or Crockett or WCW or whatever. He was he followed Calgary because that was the family business and where he started, and then WWE. And it was a he had a different style for WWE in those days, but it was much different than what most of the NWA guys were doing. So would that have meshed? I don't know. So I'm not saying that he wasn't one of the greats of all time. I'm saying, I don't know for that period of time, if that was the natural fit for him. What do you think? Cause you love him. I'm a major Bret Hart fan. I think Bret Hart from 1995 to 1998 could have been an NWA champion. Cause he could have been a baby face, could have been a heel, could have worked anyone's not could have worked anyone's match. Well, yeah. Could have had the best match with anyone in any territory. 
knew what he was doing. But there was no NWA in those years. Right, I'm saying that's you, why I'm trying to put him in that. If you period. took that, if you took that guy, I think that guy there could have worked potentially. Again, it's a whole different system, but potentially in the 80s or the 70s. But I don't think Bret Hart, like his first title run, I don't think that would have worked at all. And I don't think, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess that that's kind of, I think 95 to 98 Bret Hart was classic NWA champion caliber. Well, I actually remember I've said the Bret Hart-Steve Austin match at WrestleMania, um, you know, could have belonged on Starcade in the 80s. It was so good but in at, that way. But you know what? To me, it's almost equally as impressive the matches he had with Kevin Nash, him and The Undertaker. I mean, he was able to get these matches out of everyone that were great, that oh, made yeah. you forget about anyone's limitations in the ring. So I think... I don't, so, you know, imagine... I don't know. Did, did, he, did, he, did he ever work with Mantar? <laughs> no, yeah. I can't. Did Mantar work with... Did he work a program with anyone? Did he ever work house shows against anyone? I, I wasn't doing house shows. No, I only was... I was, Like I said, I think I made like two TVs and I was out of that. Um, I was just joshing. But, but anyway, but you have... If you can... If you can transplant a certain era Bret Hart into a certain previous era... NWA champion, then yes, especially in the ring, it would work. Again, I don't know if he'd be wearing pink and black in 1972, but I think it that would. may have been a hard row to hoe, as Mama Cornette used to say. Jim, this question from the Cult of Cornette Facebook group is from Garrison Newkirk. If, Flash, if that is indeed his real name, if Flash Flanagan was brought up to the main roster, would he have been a huge star or just another mid Carter? Um. <sighs> Again, depending on what gimmick, personality, persona, whatever that they gave him, Flash was a great worker in the ring. He's another guy who, he, ver, the verbal part wasn't natural, but when he got fired up in an issue and got some oomph behind it, uh, then he could deliver there too. He never had the cosmetic body that unfortunately would have served him better during that period. I mean, I, in all honesty, and I hope he doesn't hear this, and, well, I don't think he ever thought he was going to be the next Stone Cold Steve Austin either, but, no, in, in the Attitude Era, there was so much top talent at the top that I'm not saying he would have ever main-evented or been, you know, one of the legendary Attitude Era icons, but at the same time, because of his understanding of you know, just how to have a match and how to have an exciting match and get over and blah, blah, blah. You know, if they'd have given him the right gimmick and given him a chance, then I think he would have attracted attention. But be, be, being a mid-carter in those days was still a fucking, you know, half-million-dollar-a-year proposition. Without going too deep, there are probably a lot of listeners out there who don't know who Flash Flanagan is. Again, OVW is not readily available. First time I saw him... I'd never heard of him before. It was in 1995 at the Super Bowl of Wrestling, and he impressed the hell out of us, and that was one of those matches. It was originally going to be the Steiner Brothers. Instead, we got the Headbangers against Flash Flanagan and was it Chris, Chris Michaels? Michaels? And Chris yes. Michaels, and it ended up being a really impressive match. You got to see that powerbomb leg drop finisher, but Flash Flanagan impressed everyone. To the people at home who've never seen him or may never have access to see him, a little bit about him. Well, it, it, first of all, if Flash didn't just work OVW, 
Uh, he spent, uh, that was 95, you mentioned, with the Smoky Mountain match. He was working Memphis at that point in time or somewhere around that period of time. He's from Indiana, Indianapolis originally. And he's also spent a good amount of time in the late 90s, early thousands in Puerto Rico. I mean, there's a... <laughs> The one thing is, he was a guy that would fucking do anything again and go too far. We and we reeled him back in OVW, and he still had insane matches. But there's a clip on YouTube of him being thrown off the balcony in Puerto Rico somewhere, and he it it wasn't a landing that he stuck perfectly like he was going to wanted to. Oof. And I, you know, and we, we his original wrestling name was Flash Flanagan. We shortened it to Flash because. I just thought it sounded a little more flashy. And, you know, again, it, I think it was one of those things where at that point in time, they didn't like the The physique was not as impressive as they would like. Um, and he, I'm not saying he was fat, but he had, you know, he was like Bobby Eaton. He was in shape, but he didn't have anything that showed. So I'm trying to think where would be a good place to Puerto Rico, Flash or Flash Flanagan, either one. And there's probably more there of him than there is anything from OVW on YouTube. All right. Our next question, Jim, from the Cult of Cornet Facebook group is from Adam Phillips. Kevin Nash stated that Vince McMahon had a no strip club policy. <laughs> Nash said he ignored it one night and ran into the undertaker there and said, I guess you didn't listen either. Was this true? And did Vince have a list of places talent weren't allowed to go to on their time off? Um, well, I remember stories of the guys saying that Vince was at strip clubs with them in the 80s. I wasn't around up there then. Um, I never heard about, I don't think, they didn't need to tell me. You know, I never really went to strip clubs to begin with, except for special occasions. That's kind of, to me, that's like window shopping, where you have to pay to look through the fucking window. But uh, it, it, it might have been uh, during the period of time, what do you think, Brian, the steroid trials or whatever, when they were trying to present a babyface image? I was only in and out part-time anyway at that point. I don't remember an official decree. By the 90s, I, or the Attitude Era, I think everybody was pretty much doing whatever the fuck they wanted to do anyway. Uh, but I can't say that uh, I remember an official ruling on that. I know Taggart especially... Um, well, Papa Shango, fucking bear, uh, goddamn godfather. He not only frequented them, he worked in them. So he was a professional. He was doing, you know, national reconnaissance for his, his Las Vegas clubs. All right. So no comment on Vince's strip club policy. You're not confirming. I, well, I've, I have not, I never heard that there was an official, you know, ruling on that, but maybe it was during the steroid trial and nobody told me I, they didn't need to. And there were no other places that, you know, like you, there was no, uh, you know, no Denny's, oh, like the, there was nothing. No, okay. I mean, he would look at you and turn his fucking nose up if he saw you with a goddamn fast food bag in your hand or whatever, but he wasn't, no, don't do that, I'll fire you. I, can, I mean, it wasn't like there was, a, they made a list of the doctors and, after a while that you couldn't go to, what was that name? Indianapolis Hackett. You know, they made a list of doctors that you were not allowed to patronize for, that was a shoot. Uh, there was two or three of them on there, but 
I don't remember any locations being barred to the general talent roster. All right, Jim, let's get a couple more questions and then we'll get to the Jerry Lawler review here. This one from the Cult of Cornette Facebook group was sent in by Liam Riley. With the relative success of Dan Severn and Ken Shamrock in pro wrestling, could Chael Sonnen have been a big draw given his far greater promo skills had he left for WWE after fighting Anderson Silva? Well, yes, I've I've talked to Chael a number of times, and we've emailed back and forth, and he's a, a loud mouth too. Uh, he's got the gift of gab, and he understands the wrestling business and how to... Well, he, I won't say understand. He understands the fight business. He understands how to hype fights, what a hype confrontations, whatever it may be. So, yes, I think definitely with his mind for saying, now the police are coming to take me away here. Over my shoulder, if you hear the sirens in the back. Um, I didn't. Well, I can hear them with my goddamn headphones on. You can't hear that? Hold on, let me listen. No, I hear nothing. Well, they're they're going away now. You mean that was all in my head? <laughs> it was in your wall, maybe. Wait, now there's a light. There's a bright light <laughs> coming close. <laughs> all right, anyway. No, Chael, yes. I, th- I think he would have got it. He's a fan of wrestling and a fan of hyperbole and confrontation and hyping fights, and I think he would have gotten it well, yes. I've never seen him try to work, so I don't know if he would have been a great in-ring worker, but he could have definitely used his reputation and his gift of gab for, you know, promoing himself into but it's what Logan Paul's doing. I don't know if Chao would have done the bucks buckshot Lariat or the Bucksot Lariat either. All right. Well let's uh, get one last question here from the Cult of <laughs> Cornet Facebook group. Jim, this the one was coveted, the coveted Cult of Cornet Facebook group. The most exclusive Facebook group in the history of the stupid wrestling Facebook groups. This one is from Edward Whipkey. During the Dick Hutton NWA title history discussion on the drive-thru a few weeks ago, I was wondering why didn't Luthez drop the NWA title to Vern Gagne? Vern had the things Lou wanted in an NWA champion. Did Lou and Vern have heat? Well, I don't know if it was as much Lou and Vern personally as Vern in the NWA or at least, you know, uh, Sam Muchnick, the people that made the decisions, right? Because of the U.S. title thing with Fred Kohler. Before we explain that to everybody else, is that that's what I'm thinking was the issue. Is it? Is that what you're thinking? I don't think Luthez wanted to drop it to Vern Gagne. I can't speak specific to the reasons. But well, I, not, not, uh, not at the time that, you know... He handpicked Hutton. Yeah. Uh, but Vern Gagne had been the U.S. champion for Fred Kohler on the Dumont Network, national TV, and that was presented as being an equal to the world champion, which conflicted with everything the NWA stood for. Well, and also the the money, the payoff, they were doing the same thing with Gagne as they were doing with Thez in asking for 10% for the champion and a whatever percent booking fee, right? And which also pissed off the NWA. And the Sheik was rubbing his chin saying, that's interesting. I like this idea. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in, in the early 50s, when Ganya first got into business and was really hot on television, Thez did not intend to drop the title then to him or anybody else. 
And then the story that I always heard was by the time that, you know, it was going to be even discussed that Thez would drop it, that Ganya had heat probably with, you know, Thez personally, but also with the NWA because he had had that run with the U.S. title and had done the percentage deal and had basically taken business away from the NWA champion because of the Chicago network television being so hot. And that's the one that Thez was the NWA champion, but he was never really regularly on any of the network TV. I mean, there's there's obviously matches from Chicago because he that was the big wrestling market and he was there, but he didn't center himself on any of the, the television programs like like Ganya was pretty much featured on the Chicago program. Gorgeous George was featured on the Hollywood wrestling from Los Angeles, but Thez because he traveled and the NWA champion didn't make a lot of defenses that would even be seen on TV. So Ganya probably cut into their income there for a few years in the early fifties. Let me ask you this too. Obviously Buddy Rogers does not get the NWA title until 1961. So there's a few years there in between where you could argue someone like Buddy Rogers maybe should have gotten the belt instead of a Dick Hutton. If Vern had gotten it then, would he have been too similar to Fez, who had just had it? Possibly, because, you know, also at that point, Rogers is getting to be one of the biggest box office attractions in the business. Well, he had been a huge draw since the late 40s, but... yeah. You know, at that point, Ganya was hotter because of the TV in the early 50s, but by 1956, 57, Ganya has just gone back to Minnesota, bought into the office, but Buddy Rogers is drawing bigger houses in a more uh, wider variety of places than Ganya was at that point. And of course, Thez hated Rogers because of what he had said about. Lewis, Strangler Lewis, so he wasn't going to put Buddy Rogers over ever, which he never did. Uh, but he could have, he could have picked somebody else in Dick Hutton, but he wanted a real wrestler. Hutton had won the NCAA title, and he wanted the he wanted the guy that they were using in the forties. But now it's the fifties, and it's TV, and Rogers' shit is getting over, and that's you know so. The, the that's another thing that hurt the NWA there was Hutton being the champion and promoters dropped out. And when they finally, you know, Thez came back and then the, the fucking, you know, they got Pat O'Connor, who it was a draw at that point as a great baby face, but he was more, he was flashier than Ganya was. And he had all his hair by that point. You know, the other thing to throw into the mix here that it, it's important to remember, I think he drops the belt to Dick Hutton in 57. It's the same year that everything happens with him and Carpentier in Chicago. So it's not like there wasn't another option they even were playing yeah. with at that moment. Carpentier was the NWA champion in various places. And see, Carpentier was the opposite of Thez in that he was not a real wrestler, a hooker, a shooter, but he was a, you know, an acrobatic television-friendly performer with that style. But because he was so hot at the gate, especially in that first five-year period when he was, you know, he was like the French Rocca, Thez was willing to do it because <laughs> they probably said, Jesus Christ, Lou, the last fucking guy almost put us out of business. Help us out here. 
If they had went with Carpentier, they would have skipped right over Pat O'Connor. They would have went from a Carpentier to Buddy Rogers. Yeah. And and O'Connor, from everything that everybody says, and there's obviously, you know, some footage, but he was just he was so smooth and so flashy and and good looking and young and athletic that he was a perfect babyface champion, but he really had no gimmick besides he's a good looking, nice New Zealand fella. So, <laughs> well, you know, that's the thing they're seeing Rogers. It, it's like, it was flair 20 years beforehand. He attracted attention. So O'Connor, the only reason O'Connor drew the big house in Chicago was people knew or hoped that Buddy Rogers was going to win the fucking belt, even though he was the heel. That was the first Kind of, you know, I won't say the first ever, the first on a big time or national basis where the people were kind of like waiting to see the heel win this thing. And the other thing I guess we should point out, you know, George Shire always talks about this. And I did see one of the questions here in the Facebook group was asking about a good book about the AWA history. I have it here on my shelf. Minnesota's it sounded like you had it in a barrel. I, I just looked behind me. Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling by George Shire is a book people should check out. This was also at a period of time where the antitrust issues with the NWA were taking place. It benefited the NWA that longtime member Wally Carbo and Vern Gagne had their own thing that they could work with very easily, but it was something separate. Separate to show that it wasn't just the NWA dominating everything. Well, yeah, that's the thing is because they didn't, you know, nobody, Ganya had been such a big star in the business when he goes to back to his hometown and buys into the established office. Nobody wants to, the rest of the NWA, they didn't want to fuck with him. And it, it, it had not been an NWA stronghold to begin with up to that point uh, where, you know, they were doing their title changes regularly in Minneapolis or whatever. And then finally, you know, he's, well, why can't I be the world champion? And I got all this country up here that you guys aren't fucking with. So it was peaceful coexistence. And before cable, nobody knew the difference. People in the Midwest thought it was Vern Gagne and the people in almost everywhere else thought it was whoever the NWA champion was. And then New York had Bruno. All right. Well, New York had Bruno. Of course, <laughs> Memphis, Tennessee had the King, Jerry Lawler, and this past week, Jim, only one Ooh, hour, right. as opposed to the previous shows, which were two hours, a biography of Jerry the King Lawler on A&E. We got two hours on fucking Ultimate Warrior was in the business for five years. But, I mean, I, I, obviously, I could never get enough of, you know, the old Memphis footage and, and the story, and my God, he's been in the business 50 years and done all the other shit, the artist, you know, the art and the uh, running for mayor and a whole nine yards, and not just the Memphis run and the WWF, but the AWA and, and the other territories in the 80s, whatever. However, this was kind of like a trailer to a show when the when you watched the whole show at the end you were like boy that's going to be good i can't wait to see the whole thing there was no detail whatsoever gone into it was the stories we've already heard with you know about him and andy and not even in depth there it was you know it and i mean jerry there was no egregious you know, uh, history rewriting here, 
they didn't come out and lie like, you know, any other potential biographies where they, you know, wanted to change the narrative or rewrite history or whatever. It was just, everything was omitted because it was just the, the, the most basic details of the, he was the king of Memphis. And he said, you see the Memphis Coliseum sold out for three seconds. But they didn't even really say the Memphis Coliseum. He's talking about going to shows with his dad that weren't even at the Mid-South Coliseum. Yeah, well, yes. And so that's what I was going to say is basically everything was errors of omission rather than rewriting any history. And then it also, there was a few things where the chronology was, you know, backwards when Lawler would tell the story. Because Lawler's memory is notoriously rotten. Um, and he doesn't remember the shit he's done himself, but so it was just, you know, honest. I think he had the WWF agreeing to help them in Memphis a few years before they did the blah, 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 or whatever the fuck. But that's basically the thing. Lawler is an amazing artist, right? He can draw, he can sketch, he can do anything in almost any medium. And his handwriting looks like art. It's like professional comic book lettering he can sit down and just hand write an advertising poster and you okay go copy this and hang it up you know you and him you and him are my two favorite wrestling handwritings well i no, mine's not even yours is very neat and it's recognizable if anyone sees anything you ever wrote for the last 45 years same handwriting well but his is i'm just saying his is artist right artistic but having said that he never wrote anything fucking down. He he couldn't remember. I remember asking him in the late 70s, Jerry, who'd you wrestle in your first match? He's like, oh, shit. Uh, <laughs> it's only been fucking it's less than 10 years ago. So, but that's the thing is that they never wrote any of this shit. I've talked about the TV formats uh, that he, when he was the booker, he'd come in with one sheet off of a legal pad and it would say seg one so-and-so versus so-and-so six minutes desk interview so-and-so three minutes break seg two (laughs) so-and-so versus so-and-so five minutes desk lance and dave do memphis card two minutes and what they do is he'd just call you in the fucking little bathroom at channel five and he'd tell you everything verbally because he had it in his head and then you you went out and did it. And if it was an interview and he said, well, say this and talk about that and don't forget to plug this and Terry Funk will be here next week, whatever. If you didn't remember it, you better remember it because you might not get a chance to ask him again. And it's live. So they can't hold, oh, hold up seg five for a second. We're going over this. Fuck you. So anyway, the, he never wrote down like milestones in his career or whatever. He wasn't the obsessive record keeper. And so that's why a lot of this stuff is, you know, lost, but they could have, they had footage from Jerry Jarrett, you know, that they interviewed him before he passed. But Jerry in a lot of cases was the same way because he did this shit 40 years ago and he was doing at least one territory, sometimes two. And, you know, for weekly for years and years, so he might not remember. And I don't think that, you know, they had Lance Russell, which was fantastic. They got a chance to interview Lance. But I don't know if the people asking him the questions 
necessarily knew what questions to ask, right? So this was just the basic telling, I guess. Before we get into any further, what did you think? I enjoyed it for what it was. Again, if you know anything about Jerry Lawler's life, the good and the bad, none of it was really here. It just kind of went from zero to 60, and then it was over. <laughs> a lot of stuff about his collectibles and his man cave and everything, and him driving around talking to women in his Batmobile. <laughs> but again, he's such a fascinating guy. There's so much to talk about. Just look at everything he did in the 70s, from records to the programs that he eventually, you know, you mentioned his handwriting. Fans knew what his handwriting was. He was doing the programs. Yeah. He also did the plaque that the Mente Negro hit him over the head with, but that's another story. <laughs> but he's such a fascinating guy. The AWA title win, again, that wasn't even mentioned. I mean, none of the big wrestling moments outside of WWE were mentioned. They talk about him and Brett and him and Piper, not about him and Austin Idol in the cage or him and Kurt Hennig for the title. So you have well, to kind of... There was nothing even, you know, they didn't mention the AWA or, you know, when they, uh, the brief flirtation with the unified world title, world class and all that. They went from like 74 to 82, then 82 to his debut in the WWF in 93 or whatever. And then, and then it was over. So basically, we've told a lot of stories about Memphis and the different angles and blah, blah, blah. But even I'd like to see the unedited footage of this to see if Jerry told more of the story of how he got into the business and, and you know, how he his early days. But I thought we would do that since we haven't really talked about that. We always start with 74 when he, you know, became the top singles guy. In the documentary, the way they said it was like, and then he beat Jackie Fargo, and the next thing, he was the king. Well, yeah, and poor Bobby Shane gets no love either, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but I did a little research because uh, my friend Mark James, of course, at I think markjamesbooks.com, or you can look it up on Amazon. I'm sure this is still in print. Memphis Wrestling History, 1970 to 1985. He's got all the cards and clippings and et cetera. But as I said, when I asked, and this wasn't available in the late 70s, when I asked Lawler, well, who'd you wrestle in your first match? I don't know that this is his first legitimate match. He mentioned the, that he had had an outlaw match. And what happened was when, when he started sending in the drawings to Lance Russell, and the deal was back in those days, they had no portable videotape cameras. If you wanted to shoot, you know, the matches, because there was going to be some angle at the arena, you had to take a 16 millimeter film camera down and set it up in the stands and shoot the film and then take it and get it developed and then take it to the TV station the next week and blah, blah, blah. And they didn't want to spend the money. So they would have Lance sit at the desk and tell people what happened in the finish last week between the Blue Infernos and Jackie and Roughhouse Fargo or whatever. Well, and then the son of a gun pulled out a chain, whatever it was. So then when Lance got Lawler's drawings, he thought, well, this can illustrate what I'm talking about. And he would use that and then hold him up for the camera. And Lance still had a couple of those when he passed away. But anyway, so then Fargo sees that stuff and wants to hire Lawler to, and that was uh, true also that he told in the, the biography to, do sign work for him because he had 
Fargo had an interest in a country music club with Eddie Bond, who was a local country music star, and I think he'd been on the radio there. And I think they had a sign company also, a couple of different things. So Fargo starts getting Lawler to do all this art for him. And then Lawler sees all the girls that he sees. He's already been a wrestling fan, obviously, but he sees the money and the girls, and he's like, oh, this is great. And Fargo won't let him wrestle. Now, you know, so another thing Lawler was doing was he had a, I don't even know if it was a legitimate radio station or it may have been the college station at Memphis State, but he was on the radio somehow late night on the weekends. And there was an outlaw group in West Memphis and said, hey, we'll, we'll let you wrestle if you plug us on the radio. So he plugs them on the radio, and that's what Fargo hears about it, because now his, his boy Lawler is promoting the outlaws. So that's why I think they agreed to give him a, a chance. And Jerry Jarrett was quoted as saying that his Lawler's wrestling knowledge or his, his wrestling acumen or however he phrased it was of advanced for his experience, which is kind of what I say all the time, right? But at the same time, I'm sure Jerry Jarrett in you know, 40 years later, 50 years later, whatever it was, would have loved to have said, I saw a star instantly. I don't think it happened that way, but I think they probably did see, because you've heard me say it, it's not whether a guy can do a body slam right or not. It's whether it's how they move in the ring, whether they're herky-jerky or whether they get lost or if they know what's behind them and where they are in the ring and and, you know, just how they flow with things. You can tell whether somebody's kind of natural or not. And I'm pretty sure that they probably saw that in Lawler because of that being an artist, and he was going to Memphis State at the time on a commercial art scholarship. The hand-to-eye coordination is what has always, and he can envision, he doesn't even know this really, but you can see him doing it. He can envision, whether it's the bumps he takes or the moves he does, like I think like he sees the art on the page in front of him because he he doesn't do or in his wrestling days he didn't take bumps or do almost anything really like anybody else did but at the same time he went for all those years and all those shitty rings and all those fucking crazy matches and all those bumps on the floor and almost never never had major surgery he could see it he'd been run over by a car in a parking lot and he's, oh, yeah, we used to do that in high school. You know, what the fuck? So I think that was why that they, and also the the talking, verbally they saw something. But I went back and looked in, in Mark's book, Do You Know, O'Brien Last, the date of Jerry Lawler's first appearance in Memphis as a professional wrestler. The exact date, no. Well, I will tell you, August 17, 1970. And I guarantee, unless Lawler had this book in front of him, he wouldn't remember that. But it was at the Ellis Auditorium, not the Mid-South Coliseum. They didn't move to the Coliseum until the following year. And that's where they'd had, you know, the matches in Memphis going back to the 40s. And he wrestled. Basically, there was a nine-man battle royal with nine guys in it. 
and they made four singles matches out of it. And his singles match was Jerry Lawler versus Mac York, who was Riggy Morton's uncle, Paul Morton's brother. And he had been a, you know, a journeyman, as they used to say, around the territory for years and years. And basically, after that, uh, you go, uh, the next time he pops up is, uh, wait a minute, where was it? I'll find it. I've got to post it. Aha! January 25th. So it went from the middle of August until the middle of January before he was booked in Memphis again. And I'm not saying he didn't wrestle. I'm thinking that probably what they did was they were putting him on spot shows. Every, you know, like once a week or twice a week or whatever on weekends around Memphis whether he was in Jonesboro or whether he might have been in Batesville, Mississippi or whatever the fuck, right? Who knows? But he comes back to Memphis at the auditorium again on January 25th, 1971, and it's Tony and Chico Mendoza, those big-name Mendoza brothers, against Jerry Lawler and Gary Martin. Do you know who Gary Martin was? I don't. Gary Martin was Jerry Jarrett's brother-in-law because I asked him this question several years ago in going back through some of these old books for a period from I guess 71 to 72 or thereabouts there was the name Gary Martin and he was underneath he was a baby face and then he was a referee and then he was a heel I guess because he became like a heel referee and turned and joined the heels or whatever and I said, Jerry, I've never, there was never a picture of him. I've never seen him mentioned in any other territory. Who was Gary Martin? And he said, that was my brother-in-law. He married my sister, Carolyn, and he was a fairly athletic fella and wanted to be a wrestler. <laughs> and we tried to train him to be a wrestler. So that's, Bren that's Brennan Martin's dad? Brennan Martin's dad. Oh, no shit. Okay. And... Apparently, it, it at, at some point, they reached the conclusion it might be better if he wasn't a wrestler or a referee or whatever fairly quickly. But during that period of time, but they tried. But Gary Martin and Jerry Lawler against Tony and Chico Mendoza. And that is the last time. That was January 25th, 1971. That's the last time you see Lawler's name on a card until April of 1972. So basically, they didn't see a child prodigy. They saw a local kid that probably had some, you know, potential, but, you know, wasn't ready. So that's where Alabama came in. And because, again, Jerry Jarrett, I'm sure, would have loved to have said, oh, I saw brilliance instantly. I called Bill Golden and said, oh, my God, you got to book this kid. And Lawler, you know, may have told it and they cut it out of the biography because who the fuck would know who Bill Golden was? But what probably happened was that they told Lawler, you know, you need to go somewhere where you can get some experience and learn this. And maybe they even did put in a call, but he went to Montgomery, Alabama. And the pictures that you saw in the biography of him and the black and white picture in a ring in a studio TV setting with a curtain behind and he's got no goatee 
and the other one where he's against a curtain in black and white, but he's got no goatee and he's got the his rookie picture with the fucking goofy looking K and H jacket on. Those were actually taken by Gene Gordon. You remember the name Gene Gordon? Oh yeah, I have a major collection of his photos. He was the guy in Charlotte going back to the 50s that was the photographer for Crockett Promotions, but he went various places around the South and shot for Wrestling Review and a lot of the magazines in the 60s. And A lot of the big Georgia photos came from Gene Gordon. Yes, because hey, all he had to do was bop down to Atlanta. And so he was all, and he used the old-fashioned camera that you looked down the top of. My God, he was a, and just a, Small little old fella, Coke bottle glasses, but great guy. And I'd actually traded him some stuff in the 70s. He sent, I have the negatives to those pictures. I not only have a bunch of pictures of, because he knew I was a fan of Lawler's, he sent me a bunch of three by three or three and a half by three and a half black and white prints from the early 70s of Lawler in that TV studio and doing interviews and everything and sent me some of the negatives too. So that's awesome. If I'd have known A and E was going to fucking feature, I might've had those ready for sale. But anyway, at the time, and I know a lot of people are thinking, okay, Alabama, they're thinking continental wrestling, like the eighties, Birmingham, the Boutwell auditorium. They did the TV show with Gordon Soley or the Alabama territory. The guys were headquartered in Mobile, Alabama and Pensacola, Florida. That came later. In the 60s and early 70s, there were basically three different territories in Alabama. Northern Alabama, with uh, Huntsville and Florence and Birmingham and those towns, was part of the Goulas Welch office out of Nashville, and they ran them every week. And to the south, Dothan, Alabama, and uh, Mobile and Pensacola was part of the Gulf Coast Territory, which was operated by the Fields family, and they were cousins to the Welches and the Fullers. And then in Montgomery... And enemies of the McCoys. And enemies of the McCoys. Um, in Montgomery, the promoter was Bill Golden. And if anybody wants to look at a map or they're familiar, it's in the middle of the state. And they had a TV in Montgomery at the local TV studio and they ran Montgomery weekly and they ran spot shows around there. There's no big towns around Montgomery. So it, this was a smaller time territory and Bill Golden was a, obviously married into the Welch and Fuller family. Also, he was another cousin. So, I mean, they, the Welch Fuller family owned wrestling from Southern Indiana down to fucking Florida. But in, anyway, at that point, in Montgomery, that's where Dennis Condry, his first main event programs as a single were in uh, Montgomery for Bill Golden. And when Jimmy Golden broke in, obviously he worked first for his father. Guys who were working maybe middle of the card for Goulas and Welch would go down to Montgomery and they'd be main event guys. Or guys who had never been in the business before would be the preliminary guys in Montgomery because, you know, that's where you start. And so Lawler spent time down there and you'd be surprised if I wish somebody do a history of that territory because all these fucking names that you would, you would never dreamed would have started there popped up there. And then later on would be Tennessee legends anyway. And Burhead Jones was big in Montgomery. 
Bob Eaton's favorite wrestler. Burhead Jones, the biggest dick in wrestling. I'm not talking about his personality. But anyway, so Lawler goes to Alabama, which is, he just probably drove down on weekends or whatever the fuck, because it's straight through Tupelo, Highway 78. And that's where you see he held his first title. Uh, he met Jim White and met Sam Bass and got to know them. and you know, that was, he kind of got his shit together. And when they brought, finally, Jerry Jarrett brought him back on purpose with uh, partners with Jim White, it was because they, Jim White was kind of the veteran that had been teaching, you know, Lawler, he, he could do the moves and he could talk, but why do you do this? And what's the key behind it? So Jim White was an old veteran, had never really been in major territories, but worked all over the South, and they got to be good friends, even though Lawler never took a drink in his life, and Jim White was the biggest, well, I won't say drunk, but he was uh, drunk quite often, right? And and so was Sam Bass, who ended up managing him. And that was the, the thing, the difference between, you know, those guys, but they fit together. So... When they come back to Memphis in 1972, it's Lawler and Jim White as a tag team, but their manager is not Sam Bass, it's Jimmy Kent. You remember Jimmy Kent, the manager of the Bounty Hunters, probably right. most famously. Yeah. Well, at the time, he was just a kid from, I think he was somewhere around from Chattanooga or thereabouts, and I don't know why they advertised him first as Lawler and White's valet, Jimmy Kent. And I don't know why that he was with them, but that version didn't work. They came in in uh, April, April 10th, and had a match with, uh, it was Lawler and White against Jimmy Kent and Eddie Marlin. And Eddie Marlin, of course, is a huge babyface. But then the next week, it's grudge match, Lawler and White with manager Jimmy Kent versus Kevin Sullivan and Eddie Marlin. So somehow Eddie's partner turned on him. And the next week it's with valet Jimmy Kent. So I don't know what they were doing over there. But Lawler and White and Kent, they they worked uh, you know, a variety of programs, but they weren't featured as the main event team. You can see that they were underneath, you know, Jackie and Roughhouse Fargo versus the interns or, you know, the interns against Sputnik Monroe and Norvell Austin. So you can't really, you know, get a gauge on how they did, you know, as, as a heel team, but they got a little run. And then they, I believe at that point, they sent them over to the Knoxville end of the territory. Because again, East Tennessee got talent from the Nashville office as well. And I remember that uh, toward the end of the year there, <clears throat> you see that that Lawler and White were having matches. But anyway, nevertheless, so in the meantime, while they're gone, on August 8, 1972, they do the first sellout for wrestling at the Mid-South Coliseum. Al Green and Jackie Fargo, the hair match. And that's the clip of, of uh, Fargo against Al Green that they showed on the biography episode. That's from that match. Which, I love that clip just because of the way he delivers those arms in the corner. The way he's just hammering oh, them down. Yeah. They go wide up and right down. Looks great. Have I, I've sent that to you, right? 
You may have. I remember, I think the first time I saw it may have been, did you use that in the build up to the Night of Legends in 94? Um, yeah, probably some clips, but the whole thing, it's a, it's a two out of three fall match and it's like 30 minutes long. And that's the earliest Memphis main event uh, that exists on film. I got that in that bunch from good old Ron Martinez, but that's what they, they, Al Green and Jack, it was like a Memphis main event from the sixties because both those guys got over in the fifties and sixties. And it was a, the grudge match. That's where. I'll digress here for a second. Dave Brown can do the whole goddamn interview from start to finish. He he was so touched by it. When Al Green came out and said that Jackie Fargo's father was a drunk that died broken, penniless in an alley, and Fargo came out and responded and almost had tears in his eyes, how dare you call my father a drunk? And they do the fucking match, no time limit, no disqualification. Fargo's hair, or... Al Green was going to have to fucking forfeit $5,000 and his brother Don's junior heavyweight title and they were and the manager, Sir Clements, they were all going to have to leave town for a year or Fargo would get his head shaved. And they sold the son of a bitch out. 10,653 people and the newspaper estimated that 3,000 were turned away. And that's, from what I've heard, not bullshit that people were clamoring to get in that fucking thing. But that's, you you saw the setup when they showed the clip, the ring in the middle of the Coliseum just had a regular like ringside setup and then the rest of the giant Coliseum floor was open. Didn't have any seats on it. Because the Ellis Auditorium had only seated 8,000 at best and in the mid-60s they hadn't been doing that. So when they moved to the Coliseum, it wasn't because they outgrew the Ellis. It was because they were tearing it down and building the Cook Convention Center. So at first, even though they had done like 9,000 people for a couple of big cards at the Coliseum, they hadn't filled it up yet. So then when they did that, that's when, after that sellout, and they started doing better business later on in the year, they got those risers that would if the camera from the old coliseum shots if it panned to the left where the guys came out from the locker rooms heels on the left and baby faces on the right you'd see a sea of people they brought in risers on that end and on the other end where they could fill almost the whole floor area of the coliseum with seats and get more people in so they jacked up the wrestling capacity to like 11.5 or whatever but then it became a problem because when you got far enough up on those risers and you dropped anything of any weight toward one of the heels, if it hit him, it started to be a fucking fatal situation. So they <laughs> they ended up they left the risers on the right, but they had a stage there on the on the left hand side of the Coliseum camera left that the guys would come out, but it settled at about eleven thousand. But nevertheless. <laughs> they were more concerned back then with filling the building up than whether the heels got brained or not. So point is, they've set that standard at that point. But now you go to the later on in the uh, in the November of 72 and Lawler and White show back up. And then all of a sudden they're managed by Sam Bass. And Lawler loved Sam Bass, like I said, because he was one of the guys that helped him Sam Bass's real name actually was Fred White, believe it or not. Um, and Jim White's, I think that was his real name. But they weren't related. But they were a three-man team, and it was kind of like 
when the Midnight Express came in to Mid South after they'd had the big heels, well, Memphis had had the the interns and Don and Al Green and the Von Brauners and these big heels you were scared of. And, uh, you know, then all of a sudden Lawler and White come in and they're smaller and they're bumping and the manager is taking a more active part. He's always throwing his cowboy boot in or throwing him a chain or distracting. And they got a lot of heat, right? And then I also that- like the move of the manager having the same facial hair design as the yeah. <laughs> other guy. No one else has ever done that. It's such an interesting look. Whenever you see those photos of him and Sam Bass, same beard. I will I think that's where Lawler got it because the thing is he was still so young when he came back in November of 1972 he still wasn't 23 so he had grown the beard to look older because he had such a baby face right but down there in 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 Alabama they like I said they had the studio television so they had he'd had practice on TV studio interviews and those small town TVs they might have three 10-minute matches and some promos because they only had eight or 10 guys there. So you got time to do shit and work the small towns. Now they come back, and now you can tell that Jerry Jarrett wants to do something with them. And looking at the attendances in from October, November 72 in Memphis, you're seeing 3,800, 5,000, 3,557, 4,069, that fucking sucks, right? For Memphis, that was the shits. So I think that he figured, well, we got to do something, shake things up. All of a sudden, they're doing angles that you could, you know, even just reading the newspaper ads and kind of knowing how Memphis wrestling works, you can tell that they're doing more angles and putting Lawler and White in more positions. And finally, by January, it's the main event is for the Southern Tag Team title, Jerry Jarrett and Jackie Fargo against Jerry Lawler and Jim White with Sam Bass. And there the attendance is 5891, almost 6,000. Well, then, and Fargo and Jarrett won. But then the next week, Fargo and Jarrett defend against the Kangaroos, and Lawler and White beat Bearcat Brown and Charlie Cook. <laughs> and the next week, they put on the Super 31-man Battle Royal show with a bunch of people on the card, and they're up to 9,500 people. And Fargo and Jarrett won the 31-man Battle Royal over Jerry Lawler and Jim White. It was that, that old deal where the last two guys in each ring you know, would then do a tag team match, right? So now they're putting Lawler and White in, again still over with Fargo and Jarrett. And now you start seeing the houses coming up. And then Lawler and White win the Southern Tag title from Fargo and Jarrett. But now the houses are 9882, 7689. And obviously, we've also found out with Scott Teal's research at the Athletic Commission, that Guy Coffey was the guy who called the results into the newspaper. And Guy Coffey had been the manager of the Ellis Auditorium for years and was close to all the wrestling personalities in Memphis. And then ended up, he started working for Jarrett and was at a lot of the spot shows. And Miss Coffey, Bonnie, sold the gimmicks. And Guy was the one who would go check up at the Coliseum box office. And we found out to make the 
newspaper deadline, he'd call the results in, but before they checked up, he'd, he'd just eyeball it. So sometimes they're 200 off, or 200 over, 500 over, 200 down, whatever, but these are estimates. But you can't fake sellouts because people were there and they saw there was no seats. So they finally shoot the deal Lawler and White as the Southern Tag Champions against Tojo, Yamamoto, and Roughhouse Fargo. And the attendance is listed at 11,118, the largest indoor crowd in Memphis wrestling history. And then the next week, Tojo and Roughhouse win the belts from Lawler and White. Two straight falls, by the way. And it's reported at 11,128. They beat the previous record by, or previous week by 10. But uh, again, the with these guys on top, and they're doing this every week. They go from there to Lawler and White against Tojo and Fargo in no time limit, no disqualification, everybody's hair up. And then the next week, it's an eight-man tag. And the next week, it's an eight-man hospital elimination match. And then the next week, it's a, another tag title match with Fargo and Jarrett. And they're doing eight, 9,000 people a fucking week. So that was where that Jerry Jarrett saw that there's major money in this kid because Jim White's been in the wrestling business a long time as, as honestly a great guy, great worker, never drawn a dime. And Sam Bass, this obscure manager, uh, the manager slash wrestler that's been plucked from nowhere. But they were the one, they were the support system for Lawler to bloom as the fucking star. So at any rate, the Lawler and White ran all the way through the summer with various, the top baby faces. And then finally, um, to be quite honest, the story that I heard, Jim White disappeared. Um, and suddenly Lawler's partner was Don Duffy. He was the score of the mass scorpion, but it was Don Duffy. And I heard the story years later when I got into business and there's probably some veracity to this, that they got rid of, they, I won't say they got rid of, Jim White left the Tennessee Territory in, in a, the biggest spot of his life, making all this money and drawing these crowds. He married, at some point in the early 70s, a girl wrestler by the name of Lily Thomas. And Brian, are you can you picture her in, in your mind? Well, the story, again, I thought I heard a story. I didn't realize it was a female wrestler, so I don't know if you want me to spoil what I heard, but. Well, it, it, it was a specific, yes, that was it. He married her, and this, this is, again, this is a story I heard. He was bringing her to the matches, and especially they're running Birmingham, and they're running Chattanooga. Lily Thomas was an African-American lady wrestler. Yeah, see, that's the part of the story I remember. Jim White yes. married an African-American woman, and you could finish the rest. Well, at that time, and I'm not saying this was a Jerry Jarrett decision, but at that time, the bosses were Nick Goulas and Roy Welch in Nashville. And they either got calls from TV stations or building managers in a that's why I'm thinking if, if Birmingham would have been a perfect place for that phone call to have come from at that point in time, we can't have this. And 
I'm not saying they fired him. I'm not saying he quit, but one or the other happened. Either they said something about it and he either said, fuck you, or they said, well, you got to leave. But I have a feeling with the money that they were doing or drawing that he said, fuck you, I'm leaving. Well, didn't he argue that he got blackballed? He couldn't get booked anywhere in the South after that? Well, yes, but that could be the, uh, that could be the, the byproduct of either one of you're fired for doing this and other people didn't want to jump on it. Or if Nick and Roy got mad because he said, well, fuck you, I'm leaving. Well, then they would have been vindictive because he was drawing money. So it's, it's still open-ended as to whichever that it happened. But what was the cause? What was the root? Right. I would, you know, and I would have to think that Jim probably say, you know what? Fuck you. But then again, they tried to fuck him afterwards. Nevertheless, so now Lawler's partners with the Scorpion for a couple months, but that ain't going to work. And then he got Al Green as a partner for a few weeks or maybe a month or two, but that obviously was not stylistically, you know, something that was going to work. And business went back down. And that's when Jarrett got the idea for the quest for the title. He knows I've got this guy. He's 23 years old. He's a hometown guy. And I've been booking this town for six years now. And he's drawn me on top against me in the ring, the biggest crowds that I've drawn. So what do I do from here? And at that point, you know, Lawler had enough experience. He could be a single and they could push him. And he was best as a heel, especially he was established as a heel and nobody ever seen him as a baby face at that point. So they're going to use him as a heel. But Jared is also smart enough to realize, especially the city of Memphis with the history of Sputnik Monroe, Sputnik was the heel when he drew all those record crowds. People in Memphis liked the fucking, the the heel that was theirs, right? And so that's what he did by 1974 in January. You know, Lawler's just kind of floating for a few weeks. But then Jarrett brings in a, a belt, a title that he had not really been using in Memphis the Southern Junior Heavyweight title, which Nick and Roy had established going back in 1952, and it was still the belt. You remember that old Southern Junior Heavyweight title belt, the silver plates. That belt had a history in Nick and Roy's end of Nashville, Birmingham, Chattanooga. And, I mean, a lot of Ray Stevens, when he was in the 50s, when he was like 22, held that belt. But they hadn't used it a lot in Memphis, but they didn't really Memphis had been a tag team territory and they had a United States junior heavyweight title that Don Green had, but they'd never really, they didn't have a singles heavyweight title that meant a lot for the early seventies in Memphis. So I guess Jarrett talked Nick into, Hey, can I start using the Southern junior title over on my end? Cause Lynn Rossi had had it a bunch, Nick's booker and Lynn wasn't coming to Memphis very often. So they brought that in, and Tommy Gilbert was the, I believe Tommy Gilbert won it from Luthez, because you know how Jerry Jarrett idolized Luthez and thought he was the standard bearer, so if somebody can beat Luthez, that makes them a legitimate champion, right? And then Tommy Gilbert starts working with Lawler, 
And again, at that time, it, it was the Southern Junior Heavyweight title. They wouldn't change it to heavyweight until the middle of 75. But since the fans in Tennessee were used to not only the name, but also the fact that you guys weren't huge, it didn't matter. And then they they did a little brief angle. It's one of the greatest things I've ever seen. Where, again, Lawler was scheduled for a title match against Tommy Gilbert, and he's a heel. But suddenly, the Infernos and their manager, J.C. Dykes, turned on or got involved with Lawler and Eddie Mar or got involved with Eddie Marlin and Lawler helped him out. And they did the deal where Lawler switched babyface and started trying to get even with the Infernos, right? And I don't know whether anybody wanted to see Lawler be a babyface at that point in time or not in Memphis, in Louisville. I seem to recall that was, you know, it didn't really take, but what they did was they had Lawler and Eddie Marlin wrestle the Infernos three weeks in a row, and then Lawler went out and begged my idol. The one guy, I know we've had our problems for the past, you know, year over the tag team title and all the stuff I did with you guys, but Jackie Fargo, if you'd be my partner against these infernos, right? And Fargo says, okay. And they have the match at the Coliseum, and Fargo starts, and he's kicking the shit out of the infernos, and I remember plain as day seeing this, the film of this on uh, this is the first big angle that I saw film of that, you know, really just Lawler's insane, right? I'm 12. Fucking Fargo gets in trouble against the Infernos and they're kicking a the shit out of him. And finally he gets over and he makes the tag to Jerry Lawler. And you, Brian, you've probably seen this happen at other places because Dusty used it and I've used it in Smoky Mountain Wrestling or whatever, but. Lawler jumps in the ring and looks at those infernos and turns around and starts beating the shit out of Jackie Fargo. And the infernos and J.C. Dykes just sit up on the top turnbuckle and watch as Lawler just kills Jackie Fargo. And the people are going out of their fucking mind. He suckered him. He fooled us. Holy shit. And from then on, for the rest of the, that started the year, where they sold 400,000 live event tickets for 50 shows. And it wasn't like they were headed to, you know, the, the crowds for January 14th and January 21st with actually Lawler, not even on the cards were 41, 22 and 41, 63. As soon as fucking Lawler turns on Fargo, um, Fargo with Roughhouse in the corner against Lawler with Sam Bass, 93-82. Ring enclosed in wire, Fargo versus Lawler, 10,894. What was that? Was that as simple as it was a chain link fence or what was ring enclosed in wire? no. <laughs> that was the Tennessee version of a cage match when they didn't have the fucking cage or the goddamn trailer <laughs> or the money. <laughs> they brought rolls of chicken wire that were nailed to a fucking two before and they put the two before on one ring post and they unrolled the 18 feet of chicken wire and they taped the fucking other end to the other ring post and did that four times ring enclosed in wire. And that drew fucking 10,894 people or whatever with no overhead, no overhead. And then 
the next week, that's where that's actually, I believe, where uh, Fargo got hurt because Lawler injured Fargo, broke his ribs. So now the next week, he's not in the main event. That's the Infernos, the tag team title. Lawler's wrestling roughhouse in the middle of the card. That only draws 9,000. And then you come to, uh, hold on, I'm turning the page. Now we go back to Lawler and Tommy Gilbert because we got to, you know, settle this title thing. And Lawler retains over Tommy Gilbert, 9,626, 9,654. And then there's Lawler in, in various six-mans or whatever with uh, Eddie Marlin. And then they bring Ricky Gibson in. Here's one. Jerry Lawler, Luthez, and Sam Bass against Eddie Marlin, Ricky Gibson, and Tommy Gilbert. Wow. And that was 9,034 fans. Is, this anyway, the first, is that the first belt that you could think of that actually just dropped the junior and became a heavyweight belt? Yes. Same exact title, same champion. They just changed the advertising in the newspaper. Right. No one else did that. No one else just, yeah. Nelson Royal, the new world champion. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So here we get good because Memphis was a summertime territory and I'm going to take us through the title match and then we'll, we'll bid adieu. But Memphis was a summertime territory and they always tried to do the hottest shit in the summer because kids are out of school. Everybody wants to go out and do something. Right. So by the end of May, Fargo has still been injured, and I remember the broken ribs thing. This old woman that used to bring him a bottle of whiskey every once in a while at the garden said, I bet he went to dry out. But so in the meantime, while Fargo's been gone, that's where Ricky Gibson came in. Ricky Gibson was Robert Gibson's older brother. He's a, a, a guy from Pensacola that had started wrestling in Alabama in the small circuits and had already... By that time, I think Ricky was like 25, 26 years old. He was one of the best in-ring babyfaces in the business at that time. As I look back now and see how good he was and have had experience seeing other people, you know, the injuries and the big bumps he took and the car wreck and a whole bunch of shit. But he was NWA title contender level at this and so athletic. He's the guy you saw doing the missile drop kick off the top rope when nobody did those things. When he'd do the manager chase, manager'd run out of the ring, he'd fucking run, and instead of goddamn either vaulting over the ropes or diving through the ropes, he would run and step up on the top turnbuckle and jump flat-footed to the floor. And it was like, God damn it. And then, of course, you know, his body betrayed him. But nevertheless, Ricky Gibson is now challenging Jerry Lawler for the Southern Junior Heavyweight title. And these are the first guys, I've, they're doing vertical suplexes. And I'm like, what the fuck? Because Lawler has been also, since Jerry Jarrett was booking Atlanta for Barnett, if you go and look at the Georgia records, in 73 and a lot of part of 74, Lawler was working in Georgia. And he has seen Bobby Shane work, and he, if there's one person that Lawler did steal some things from in terms of his in-ring work and facial expressions and way of selling, and it was Bobby Shane. And nobody knows because there's so little of Shane video left that nobody really re recognizes it, but I can see things from pictures. But Lawler said in the biography that, well, when he beat Jackie Fargo, the fans said, hey, you're the king now. 
Well, actually, no, the King Elvis Presley from Memphis and Bobby Shane was doing a King of Wrestling thing with his valet wife, Miss Sherry, and had the crown. And Bobby Shane was going to Australia to work for Barnett and suggested and even gave Lawler his first crown and said, you ought to do this there where you're the king of wrestling in Memphis, where they're the king of, there's the king of rock and roll. And so he had the crown. So when he starts getting this push, because again, at this part, um, and I've, I've got to track down exactly, and I have a lot of audio tapes that'll tell me, but I don't remember exactly when Lawler started calling himself the king but they weren't putting it in the newspaper advertising, even in Memphis, for quite some time. So it's a gray area here, but somewhere around the, the Fargo program. Anyway, so Lawler and Ricky Gibson. Here's one. Um, May 27, 1974. Probably, goddamn, that would have been Memorial Day, because they're on Monday nights. Lawler versus Ricky Gibson. No decision. Double count out. Crowd 91-44. And then they come back the next week. Southern Junior Heavyweight title, Lawler versus Ricky Gibson, Jackie Fargo, special referee. Fargo's back from his injury. The crowd is reported at 11,332, but the assistant Coliseum manager, Daryl May, said, I'd say at least 1,000 didn't get in. There were people packed in all the lobbies after the Coliseum was full. That was to see Fargo come back and be the special referee. Right? So then the next week, no time limit, no disqualification, because Ricky Gibson won the title when Fargo was the referee. So now it's Ricky Gibson champion with Fargo in his corner against Lawler with Sam Bass. They did 11,629. They got those bleachers out, more chairs. Then the next week, Jan June 17. Main event, not even for the title, just grudge match. Jackie Fargo versus Jerry Lawler. No contest, 11,542. June 24, Southern Junior Heavyweight title match. No time limit, no disqualification. Jackie Fargo with Ricky Gibson in his corner against Jerry Lawler with Sam Bass. 11,783. The next week, Monday, July 1st, ring and closed in wire, Brian. Jackie Fargo versus Jerry Lawler, 11,407. July the 8th, the main event, another Southern Junior Heavyweight title match. No disqualification because, see, they're, they're bouncing it back and forth. Fargo will beat Lawler, then Lawler will beat Fargo, then Fargo will beat Lawler. So on July 8th, Fargo loses the title to Lawler, 10,535. Then July 15th, now that the deal with, with Fargo is has pretty much peaked, that's where Jarrett pulls the trigger on. He's put, in the, in the last match, he's put the belt on the heel over the all-time top babyface in the territory. Jackie Fargo lost. He had to lose the last match because back in those days, the program either went on until the babyface won decisively or the heel won and you split it off because you wanted the heel to go on further than you wanted the babyface. Nobody had ever got the last word on Jackie Fargo. So now 
that they've done that string of hot crowds and Fargo's proven he can beat Lawler. Lawler's proven he can beat Fargo, but Lawler gets the last word. He's the champion. Now he goes on to face everybody that Jerry Jarrett can get from the top 10 rankings in the NWA of Bill Apter's magazines. Because that's the top, there, there is no legitimate top 10 ranking in the NWA or in wrestling, right? But the fans read the magazines. So he's got the idea that for the first time, I think in, God, it may have been three or four years that the NWA champion had been to Memphis at that point. He's going to bring the NWA champion, Jack Briscoe, to Memphis in September to challenge or to defend the title against Lawler. And he wants to make Lawler the top contender and make it a whole fight. They did a special. I remember where they put all the films together. I saw it on television. I couldn't record it, goddammit. All the films together of all these matches and Lawler's promos, and that went along with the music video of him in the boat, the bad news and all that other shit. The quest for the title. And now all of a sudden, they hated fucking Lawler because he hurt Jackie Fargo, and they were coming to see him get beat. But now every week he's wrestling guys that are mostly considered baby faces. But it's to determine whether or not this kid from Memphis is going to be the new world heavyweight champion. So July and and Jarrett couldn't get a lot of these names to do a job for Lawler because they'd never heard of him. He's he's fucking 24 years old. What the fuck? I've never heard of this fucking guy. He's only worked one territory and fucking Montgomery. So they wouldn't do a job for him, but they'd get there and they'd see the fucking place was sold out. And the, the one that really got Bobo Brazil knew what was going on and he'd actually do a job for Lawler and Jared ended up booking him all over the place for years after that. But anyway... July 15, 1974, Lawler versus The Sheik. No no decision, no contest, it didn't matter, 11,700. July 22nd, Lawler versus Bobo Brazil, he was in the top 10. Lawler won, 10,600. Uh, the following week, Jerry Lawler versus Mr. Wrestling number two. The crowd is not recorded, I remember seeing the film and I believe they got Wrestling 2 disqualified. August 5th, Bobo comes back for his rematch, 10750 August 12th, Lawler versus Dick the Bruiser, who definitely didn't do a job, but Lawler won by disqualification, 11599 Hey, can you speak to that for a second? The idea Dick the Bruiser comes to Memphis, Tennessee. Obviously, he doesn't have to worry about the fans in Indianapolis seeing anything in Memphis, but he still won't do the job. Well, no, because at that point, Bruiser considered himself, it doesn't matter. I'm I'm a star everywhere in the goddamn United States and around the world. So it wasn't just about his home. He figured his, the home territory for him was the wrestling business. Bruiser didn't put people over at that fucking point. Not in his territory or not. That was, it was like the Sheik, except if it was a major, major deal for Sam Muchnick or one or two other people, Bruiser would get pinned, but otherwise it, this was past the point where Bruiser was getting pinned. So, 
And at the same time, but here's the thing, Jerry Jarrett was even sending Bruiser a check every fucking week. Not to even work for him. Because remember at Evansville and Louisville, they had the situation where Bruiser considered those towns still his, even though he hadn't run them in five years, when Jarrett opened them up. And Nick, to keep the peace, made Jarrett send Bruiser a check. That's why in Louisville at Evansville in the early 70s, occasionally Wilbur Snyder would show up on the card. Or you'd see, you know, somebody that was working for Bruiser. And usually it was just, a, you know, underneath matches because Bruiser's guys, they, they had no TV coverage here and they didn't get over because nobody, nobody knew, right? Bruiser, the people knew his name, but it also when he'd go out of his territory in those days, it wasn't the most exciting thing you've ever seen. Having said that, in this one, Jarrett called him and said, hey, you know that, that kid that's drawing all the money on in, that I'm sending you checks from Louisville? Come and just get disqualified. And Lawler was the perfect guy to put in the ring with Dick the Bruiser in terms of someone who could do a lot of things while the other guy isn't. Exactly. Take all the bumps and fucking, you know, all the facials. But that's the thing. At the same time as I'm talking about these crowds, Louisville Gardens was doing 5,000 people a week to see Lawler versus Ricky Gibson and Lawler versus Jackie Fargo and whatever. So this was just one town. And then August 19th, Southern title, they bring Robert Fuller in. Lawler beats Robert Fuller. Even though he wasn't in the top 10, they still knew who Robert Fuller was in Memphis. That only drew 88-73. Then, August 27, Lawler versus Rufus R. Jones, 10,776. September 2nd, Lawler versus Robert Fuller in a return, uh, attendance not listed. Or the following week, when it was Jerry Briscoe versus Jerry Lawler, they didn't list the attendance, but that was the match to set up the following week with the world title match with Jack Briscoe coming in. They made clear Jerry Briscoe's coming in to test his brother's opponent the week before the match. And so I assume, based on what they'd been doing, that those houses were somewhere around eight to 10,000 also. And then September 16, 1974, do you think that Jack Briscoe versus Jerry Lawler for the world title sold out after all this build? It better have. Well, it didn't. You know why? No. <laughs> because another thing that Jerry Jarrett got from Eddie Graham was championship prices. And they raised the prices. Now, I don't know what the gate was because I wasn't in the in the business yet, and those things were not, you know, reported at that point to the general public in Memphis. But the normal ticket prices in those days in Memphis was four dollars ringside, three fifty the, the what they call the loge, reserved and loge, and three dollars for general admission. So basically, a sellout in the mid-70s at regular prices was somewhere around $35,000, $36,000, right? Because there were a lot more $3 tickets than there were four. Well, for this night, they bumped ringside from four to seven, the risers and the bleachers from $350 to $550, the loge to, from... 350 to 450 and general admission still remained $3 but they got 
10,125 people at those prices, which had to be at that point, the record gate in, in Memphis. Um, but it, there's been two different times that Jared has done the Eddie Graham championship prices in effect on his biggest cards. And he, he would outgross his normal gate that he would have grossed if he had sold out. But the Memphis people are like, fuck you. You're going to raise the price. The other one was his debut in the Coliseum when he broke off from Nick in April of 77 golden circle front row ringside was $25. Memphis had never seen a fucking wrestling ticket over $7 at that time. And so they did an, they did another 10,000 something, but it would, it would keep the, uh, cause a lot of times also, a lot of the fucking guy people would just come in and grab a $3 ticket and just go sit up in the bleachers, see the main event. And they wouldn't particularly care about the rest of the show. Anyway, Lawler and Briscoe, September 16th, they did the, the finish that Briscoe was doing in a variety of the Tennessee territories. I've, I saw him do it with Ron Fuller in Knoxville on film. Lawler pulled out a chain, knocked Briscoe out put the chain under his arm to hide it from the referee cover one, two, three. He gets the pinfall. It's on video. People see him beat the world champion. And then the fucking referee raises his arm and the chain falls out and the referee sees it and fucking reverses the decision disqualification. The place, the babies go in the air. Briscoe gets the belt back. The fans are ecstatic. And then that, after that run, of that summer, I mean, they still did good business up until the end of the year because, for one thing, on September 30th, that was Andre the Giant's first appearance in Memphis, which did, uh, all, I'm pretty sure it was a sellout anecdotally. It was not reported in the newspaper. But they were they were still doing seven, six, seven thousand, five thousand into the wintertime after that hot run. And early in 75, when Ron Fuller came in and worked with Jack Briscoe and Barnes and Dundee came in, that's when they Lawler and Jared had a little tiff for a while and he was gone. They still kept business strong, but that run in 1973 through 74 is what cemented Lawler as the top guy in Memphis. Those everybody in wrestling at one point or another in the previous 20 years had been to Memphis, including the NWA world champions, and nobody had ever drawn that kind of money. Did that run go to a young Jerry Lawler's head? And if you were in Jerry Jarrett's position at that point, would you have had the guts or would you, I don't know if guts is the word, or would you have even had the decision-making ability to say, I'm going to send Jerry Lawler my top star to Florida? Well, that's the thing is that in, see, I wasn't smart then. I'm, I've just turned 13 and Lawler's the, they switched him babyface in November of 74. Because after that run, I guess, you know, I was thinking, well, golly, now he's so popular. And maybe they were trying to capitalize on that or whatever, but within two months, November, December, he was in a, they had a tournament for the Southern title here in Lawler, here in Lawler, here in Louisville, the first week of January 75 and Lawler did a job in the first round and was out. And that's the last time we saw him to like May. And what the fuck? I had no idea at the time what had happened. And then later, years later, Jerry, Jared had told the story that 
Lawler came to him and said, well, Jerry, I just can't be, you know, I can't go all the way to Knoxville or I can't be going all the way to Johnson city or I can't be making the, this small town or whatever. And, and the way Jerry Jarrett tells the story and Lawler has admitted that portions of this may be true is that Jarrett said, well, if you can't make the small ones and you can't make the big ones either, because that's part of this. Right. And he let him go to Florida and see if the grass was greener over the other septic tank. And, and it wasn't. And at the same time, you know, they, they were doing good business in Memphis, but not like what they'd done with Lawler. So after some penance was served, uh, he came back and, but you know, that was, that was the thing when you, when there were no smart fans and I wasn't a smart fan, when somebody would go away like that, you'd be like, well, golly, it just, the magic, I guess, left him. Did Jarrett make the right decision in your eyes? Would you uh, yeah. would you have done the same thing? Yes, and also to be honest, he made the right decision because the people missed him because he went away. Because that streak was so hot that even though they switched him babyface and it was a new presentation, you can see by the, you know, Jerry Lawler was beating the mummy, that evil mummy that Sam Bass, his former manager, had brought in to get even. But it was like 5,600 people or 5,200 people watched uh, Tojo and Jerry whip the mummy and Sam Bass. It wasn't the same thing. Oh. And I, I guess at some point, you know, you have to you have to let the engine rest. You can't just floor it all the time. What were you going to say? At what point do you think Jerry Jarrett realized that Jerry Lawler could be the future babyface star of the territory? How early do you think he knew <sighs> that? Well, I mean, I'm sure because any wrestling promoter or booker from the territory days would have in mind, you know, this guy can, the hotter I get him as a heel, one of these days I'll turn him. When the time is right, as Abdullah the Butcher would say, when the time is right. And he'd already, he'd turned him babyface for brief runs just to, in the first case, to make him a hotter heel, and in the second case, just because Maybe he was giving him an attitude adjustment. Say, I'm fixing to send this guy out, so I'm going to get something out of it on the way out. But he, every time, it, it would it would be, he would come back as how he left, usually as a baby face, but then he would switch somewhat quickly back heel because that was, at the, he didn't really take as a baby face for a long period of time until they did the angle in 77 after Elvis died with Lawler retiring to pursue the musical career and then Jimmy Valiant coming in and establishing him, which is another way that Jerry Jarrett booked completely on the fly one of the top three or four single stars in the history of Memphis to get over from his first night in. But we'll tell that one later on. But, but yeah, so Lawler was gone for a while in the early part of 75 and two things Ron Fuller kept Memphis going as a single heel, but Barnes and Dundee were really drawing the fucking money there because they were like the Midnight Express coming into goddamn Mid-South. Nobody would ever seen anything like that. And Lawler didn't come back having hard feelings about Ron Fuller. It was about Bill Dundee. Well, well, no, he didn't have any hard feelings at that point because it, it hadn't <laughs> got to that point yet, but... Um, like Barnes and Dundee against Tojo Yamamoto and Eddie Marlin in the main event, 10,249 people in March. And they'd just been in the territory for two months, whatever. So, but you know, that, that was the thing. And finally that summer, 
the Mongolian stomper as the Southern heavy, and they couldn't put the Southern junior heavyweight title on the Mongolian stomper. That's another thing. So stompers, a Southern champion, Jack Briscoe and Ron Fuller did, I think two sellouts in the first couple months of the year. And then stomper starts drawing those fucking houses. And then they reunite. Well, at first the stomper, when he was drawing the houses, they brought Lawler back for a two week run. And that sold out. And then they reunited the Fargos and they sold out another three or four times. There were like seven or eight sellouts within a three month period and a couple of others at 10,000 or more over the summer of 75 too. It was a hot year. Louisville wasn't doing as well as Memphis was because we weren't getting Lawler as much and all the, the top stuff that was going on in Memphis. Well, there you go. So that's uh, that's just an hour and a half on the first four years of Jerry Lawler's career. So see what they could have done with the biography? Or as A&E called it, 30 seconds. <laughs> 30, 30 seconds in the career of Jerry Lawler. Here you go. And it's not like things got less interesting as the 70s went on or as things went on. And that documentary was fine for what it was, but it wasn't much. But it was nice to see, and it was nice to see Lance Russell on A&E on national TV in 2023. Yes. All right, well. Whose show is this? Which one are we doing? I've forgotten since we started. I think technically this is my show. I'm more than willing to hand it off at this point. But well, we why have, don't you just close it up? We're going to do that. Songs return next week. We've been going a long time. We've given you a lot of content. we got to go watch Dynamite and get ready for the experience this weekend. So for Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! Well, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Yes, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting on Big fucking Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey Ryan, the young bucks, the rednecks and dumb fucks, and them dork order bomb fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella. And Santino Marella, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, the boogeyman. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Well, it's all elite wrestling. Tony Khan is investing his billions of dollars in some dumb cosplay wrestlers. Yeah, they think they are wrestlers in video games just like Kenny Omega. We pledge allegiance to the leader of the mighty cult of Cornets and to the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow-up dolls, kick spots, or dance routines with blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. And have you heard about Riho? She weighs 45 kilos and she's their champion. She's a Japanese schoolgirl. All the Japanese schoolgirls like Kenny Omega love to play with his Sega. Yeah, they play with his Sega. You need to sue the guy for you, Steven Pierre. Everybody, Corny's drive-through. Corny.
ฟิลกอนีใจฟิลกอนีใจฟิล And now here are your hosts, Jim Cornette and the great Brian Lass. <laughs>